0: Welcome to the Plastic Please Store Podcast.
1: We are your hosts, Trey the Explainer.
0: And me, Miles grabb
1: A podcast about the natural world.
0: Things that people claim are part of the natural world.
1: And things that
0: used to be. And Trey, we're back with another episode, buddy.
1: That's right. Yeah, yeah, we're here. We're, we're back from our little break.
0: Yeah, last time was a pretty big episode. Uh, it took me a long time to edit it, but I, I think it turned out pretty good. I was happy with it. Yeah, me too. So, So what have you been up to? What have you been working on?
1: Oh, I've been working on, I've, I'm finally making a lot more progress on the video script, like the Rad. next one. I'm, I'm working on the the intro. The intro, I think, is like the hardest part sometimes where you try to make it good, but also like not too fluffy, you know, like you're trying to put yeah. people in. So I think it's going okay. I'm sure you're Nellie. You seem to know what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. How about you, man? Well, I'm drinking some Coke
0: Zero out of my Star Trek three mug that uh, is from Taco Bell 1983.
1: So I'm Come having a next- good day nice that mug is older than me
2: yeah yeah
0: it's very old. <laughs> it has uh it has spock's face really big on it really great art you,
1: you'd you love it oh nice have you seen all the star trek films i haven't seen i've i my introduction to star trek was the um chris Pr- pine the whatever oh, those ones I, I saw like the first and second one of those and then no pretty much none other star yeah, trek I... content
0: I hate hearing that. That's awful. That's the terrible <laughs> I- thing I just heard.
1: I, I know, I know Star Trek from um, Red Letter Media. Pretty yeah. much everything I know is from Mike, and I'm like, oh, this <laughs> sounds actually pretty good. And me, and me sending you random vi- pictures of cards yes. that I opened. <laughs> <laughs> yes, your your trading cards you have. Or <laughs> <laughs> look at this weird shit Trey. Isn't it weird. <laughs> and I'm like, what is that? I see like uh, goo monsters. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and goofy uh, alien races. It's it's pretty cool. I that guess.
0: goo monster killed a main character. By the way, it did.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um so do you see that Daily Mail thing, the the yellow brick road found? I did. I just saw that a couple minutes ago.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like just happened for the show. It's not something we're gonna like cover in detail, but uh that's some bullshit, huh? <laughs>
1: it's just it's bad reporting. <laughs> like I get yeah. what they're trying to do. They're trying to hook people in, but it, it's so misleading and it's gonna cause problems later down the line, I just know. So this gonna... is like
0: um off of Hawaii, right? On the seafloor.
1: Yeah, in the yes. Ocean.
0: So it's 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 like basically that if you look at it, there is like this um, rectangular-looking, like elongated structure, which you could kind of say looks like yellow bricks, you know. And it, but it's a geological formation that caused us. We know what caused it, you know like it's not like mysterious but somebody on the stream said it looked like the yellow brick road which it kind of does artificially but now people are going to say that there's a magic road to atlantis for sure so
1: yeah it's a pain i love the nautilus though the nautilus live stream sure but like yeah they take like a joke that they had in like a just an offhand joke and like this news story is like oh we're gonna misrepresent this and try to hook people in and Oh, gosh. And you can just hear like the ancient aliens and creationists and stuff. Try to try to bring that in there. It's going to be yeah. a problem. It's I'm just well, going to I know I'm going to see it on TikTok or something like three years later. <laughs> the problem with these kind of myths is they never go away. You right. know, like if they do a story about uh, if there was ever
0: life on Mars, they're going to bring up the face on Mars. They're ne- they're not going to not bring it up, you know, like this they just things just don't go away. So,
1: yeah. Thanks, Daily Mail. <laughs> they to their credit, they corrected it like within the article, but like the headline is the misleading part. You know, mm-hmm. people are and so a lot of people aren't going to read beyond the headline, unfortunately. Uh, well, Trey, I heard you saw a movie. I did. I saw a film. I, I, yeah. I went. I uh, <laughs> went to the movie theater. Um, it was like probably my first time since what was the last movie I watched before that? Sonic the Hedgehog it was not sonic the <laughs> i'm trying to think it was probably something bad it was probably something miserable but it's anyway, definitely something bad <laughs> i saw i saw the northman which was yeah. uh, robert eggards mm-hmm. um who did the the Witch and um the lighthouse which i, yep. I really love both those movies a 24 superstar yeah yeah and he, he makes fantastic movies and uh yeah i saw the northman which is uh, set in like the Viking age and like the late 800s, early 900s AD. And um, I was blown away by it. I was very impressed with like I, I, some of my um, archaeology friends who I worked with at dig sites, they recommended it to me. They're like, oh, you, you'll love this. Like they, they use a lot of uh, historical inspiration and archaeological stuff um, to make the film really, really accurate. And, and I saw that it's like really impressive. So you you were pointing out that some of the things in the
0: film are are direct adaptations from real um, um, archaeological finds we've had,
1: emblems or carvings or art. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like I I, so like when I first saw the movie, I like noticed some here and there. Like um, one of the characters um, has like this distinctive uh, coin necklace and they never really zoom in on it. You don't get to see it close, but like I could see just by like the general shape of it that it looked like an Arabic coin. Mm. you know and like the the father character in the movie who's like a king uh who gets back from like a raid said he captured it from a a prince and i think it might be a reference to like the viking raids in islamic spain and portugal oh that's Uh, really interesting yeah and i was like oh crap and and it matches up with the timeline it's it's roughly around that timeline as well um and i was like wow and like so that was one of the things i noticed and then like sprinkled throughout the film i just kept on noticing more and more details um and it's like just super impressive because, like, you'll like for me, like, there's this one part where they they see this uh the the mound dweller. It's uh it's like a a drow, which is like I guess a um, Norse mummy spirit, sort of like zombie kind of creature. Um, in, in D and D, they're dark elves. Oh, they are. Oh. That's what the drow are. Yeah. Oh, I guess it's inspired by like the the action. And I know that they're in Skyrim too. Yeah. They're, yeah um so they they see it he like he goes through a a burial mound, which was a, a actual thing um and uh and I saw that the drow which is it's like a mummy um it's wearing like a period authentic helmet and it's like I identified like the actual helmet that it's been I'm like, oh my gosh, this is the Benny Grange helmet or the Sutton who helmet um which is like perfect because it's like those were six hundred a d and the movie set like probably 300 years later so it's like I love it when movies do this sort of thing where like it, it's like historical and it shows like historical people, but like there's history even older than them. So it's like, oh, yeah. that, that mummy is like an Anglo-Saxon burial, um, which is something like Vikings looters must have might have seen and stuff. So it's like, oh, that's awesome. Um, there's like other stuff that I noticed, like um, the like he gets a sword from the burial and it looks like it's Damascus steel. Which is uh sort of—it's become like this legendary uh, method of making swords that was kind of a, all the craze in the Middle Ages. Um, he went.
0: He wins the sword in Sacred Combat. Who? The the Viking guy.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Against yeah. the uh, the Drow or the yeah the, well, the that, mountain.
0: That guy was wearing Roman
1: armor, wasn't he? Oh, he's he was wearing Anglo-Saxon armor.
0: Oh, I thought he was wearing like Roman era armor.
1: Um, he was, uh, so his helmet is, is, um, directly and based on like Anglo-Saxon uh, helmets. Okay. And, um, he's like wearing like reeds and stuff too. So it's like a little bit of a mix. Um, sure. I think one part they have like a person in Roman or, or Greco Roman like armor in like the tree sequence. Um, hmm. yeah. Yeah. So there, there's a lot of really cool like details like that. I read like an interview where, um, do you remember that there was a, uh, a shield maiden there was like a female viking riding a horse
0: yeah valkyrie
1: um no that that's different the the lady so the valkyrie is like a mythical person but like the shield maiden was um in like the raid on like the slavic town
0: oh yes 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 that far, very, yeah.
1: very very briefly she like walks right by yeah, yeah. um and like I, I watched an interview and like they said it's based on like a specific grave it's, it's bj 581 that's um, right because that's, that's
0: what i did for clovis i based it on the anzic child you know so this was like take a thing that happened and like get a myth about it so that's really cool
1: yeah it was was really cool And during the filming they were able to confirm that like that skeleton is like a biological female which is which is amazing that's Um, cool so like i like how they depicted like these things that are both confirmed in like the historical record and like the archaeological record um and it's just it, it was it was fascinating for me like um I was, I was like freaking out in the seats. I was with my partner and I was like, Oh my God. Like I kept on trying to want to like talk to them. Okay. <laughs> this whole time. Um, like the berserker sequence. Remember that with like the oh, yeah, yeah. fire. And I was like, Oh, that's all like, it's like that like was directly based on like, um, pagan, um, uh, like, uh, reliefs and, in, in imagery, um, mm-hmm. and, and historical accounts. And I was like, Oh, that's really cool. Berserkers for people that don't know they were like these, um, specific like shock trooper Vikings um who got like really hyped up on drugs and went into battle like near naked and sort of dressed in like uh bear skins and stuff and and were able just to like take like a ton of hits and and yeah, yeah and what the their, their legend
0: their legend is also in d d because yeah. um yeah Berserkers like just go rage on people and you know it doesn't matter how much they get hurt they just keep on going
1: oh yeah yeah, it was, it was cool. Like um, one thing that really stuck out to me was like their depiction of like Norse religion and rituals. Um, it's like, we we know like surprisingly little about actual Norse like rituals and customs were like, um, because like they didn't have um, sort of like a written language. Like they had like runes and stuff, but like now they didn't have like books. Yeah. Um, so a lot of it's recorded by like Christians, like centuries later. So it gives them, it gives people like filmmakers a lot of leeway with how like they depict like Norse religion, um, and like the movie did a really cool job of like filling in a lot of those details. They mentioned Christianity in the movie. They do. They mention them. They're yeah. like the the like they're like scared of them. They're like, oh my gosh, those Christians.
0: <laughs> well, and so he pins the, the the main character goes on like a raid and kills some people. It's a it's a vengeance movie. It's basically Hamlet. Yeah. Or so like you know it, I'm not really spoiling. It's a very old style story. Um but like when he kills some people he like hangs them up on a, a door in like the shape of a centaur and they're like oh he he hangs them up on a tree like maybe it's the christians cuz the christians worship a god that's hung to wood.
1: So <laughs> and, and I was like that could, that's actually probably a thing people would worry about cuz they yeah. they also do mention a uh, constantinople at one point um during like the raid after the raid when they're rounding up sort of the uh mm-hmm. slave um it was, it was really cool. Like the minor little details, like that's an offhand comment, but it's like, oh yeah, that's bringing up that the, the Norse uh, Vikings, like had a strong, like trade relationship with the Byzantines and stuff at that time. It was cool. Like, and I also really liked how like they depicted Norse, like religion where like they held their beliefs and God's like extremely high and like were passionate about them. Like as passionate as like Christians were, like they really sure. believed in them. Um, yeah, it was, it was really cool. And, um. We got yeah, to see they,
0: Odin's ravens. That was badass. Oh
1: yeah, when they—I I loved. um You see Bjork as like the um, oh, yeah. like a Slavic uh priestess. So they they showed multiple pagan religions, which was kind of cool.
0: um What what I kind of liked about the film was just it really had nothing to say about anything that's happened in society for like hundreds of years. Oh, it yeah. was it was very old and traditional and wasn't trying to like reframe these old viking stories into like modern day it was just keeping their own weirdness their own morals and ethics like it was very much like a a version of looking into the past more than like a readaption to fit somebody's like values today and i thought that that made it cooler and weirder and more interesting for me at least so
1: oh yeah no i i definitely agree with that that's like a a, like a flaw with a lot of like historical pieces is they try to like Turn these ancient stories into like modern ones. Um, yeah. The most glaring example is like, if you ever see this, the awful Alexander movie. I, I know you're going to mention that. I knew. Oliver, it. <laughs> Oliver Stone, that was terrible, where there's a scene where Alexander the Great is like, oh, we want to build a multi ethnic nation that uh believes in democracy and we want to yeah. free the slaves and it's like he that that's totally bullshit like they did not believe in that at no, all they, i mean like i said like
0: liberalism is a technology that's evolved over hundreds of years you know like yeah um you want to like characters from the past because they did cool things they're from different cultures like it's it's nice to learn about them but yeah they're going to have opinions that you really don't like and that's yeah. just how it is you know yeah. and like
1: hey, the- the Northmen, like, doesn't do that at all. They don't shy nope. away from how, like, brutal Vikings were in reality and, like, how they were terrible people and their society was built on violence and yeah. toxic masculinity, kind of. Like. He
0: does catch a spear in midair and then does a 360 and whirls it back up at a guy.
1: Yeah, yeah. That was, kind of, that was cool. There's, a, there's cool stuff in this, but, yeah, you're right. <laughs> oh,
0: yeah, yeah. The, the one ritual with them barking like a dog and stuff, is there any, like... um what's that come from? Is this just a,
1: uh, um, it, it probably could, like, I think that's like invented for um, the movie. Like I know that like the Norse religion had a lot of stuff where people could turn into animals. Like that's yeah. sort of part of the Berserkers. Um, but I don't, and like, I, I think they bring up, um, Oh, who's the, what's the wolf that bites tears Finnir Yeah. They bring, they bring Finnir up. Um, so it's related to that. Like I'm reminded, like I read an article on like, History Channel's Vikings. Have you ever saw that? No, it's okay. It's it's okay. Uh, where they talk about like how I don't watch History Channel. It, it was the one good thing History Channel had left besides Monster Quest. I think like, okay. It, okay. It, it's okay. It's it's an okay series. There's there's some flaws in it, but like as far as like historical pieces, it's it, it's there's worse out there um so it depicts viking culture similar to the northmen it's it's far far like less realistic Mm -hmm. and accurate and stuff and it's kind of cheesy at points but (laughs) they talk about how like they have um they depicted the viking religion like they they made up a lot of stuff for it like people lick um the seer's hand which is like a priest um and they said that that's totally made up there's no evidence that like that was a thing but like it's possible you know like yeah you could could lick someone's
0: uh, hand it could happen
1: yeah like think about like christian religion like people do a lot of weird stuff with in in mass and stuff so you they know. eat the they eat the flesh of jesus christ right <laughs> right if, if that's not weird and you like yeah <laughs> yeah the plot was pretty cool like uh it was cool where i could see it was just straight out of like a north saga um, uh a,
0: a little spoiler like um so the next 30 seconds you can skip but uh the part when he realizes that the like he has to accept his destiny, and he can't leave it when he's on the boat. and He just fucking like jumps out of the boat and swims yeah, all the way yeah. back. There. He's like, he's like, no, nah, man, it's my destiny to die in fire. I have to do it. That part was
2: funny.
1: <laughs> he just swam all the way back, and I like how his his wife or girlfriend is like, she just like gives up on him, even though he he's like right there, probably. Like he can't swim that fast.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, like in in the plot of the film it was his destiny to do this right like he he had he had his own will and everything but like stories at this time aren't just individualistic you should do what you know feels true to you kind of stories these were you know if you have a destiny you must fight to fulfill your destiny and not Mm -hmm. fight against it right so like he that's the kind of narrative it is and and he gets benefits when he fights to fulfill what he's supposed to and bad things happen to him when he doesn't so even Mm -hmm. though like he has a chance at happiness he kind of knows there that you know odin has saved him so he can kill his uncle and if he does not do this then he's not going to be blessed with those children his children will be cursed and things will happen to them you know so like he kind of accepts this and goes and fights in a fucking volcano like anakin and (laughs) obi-wan
1: i I thought of that yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) the ending of revenge of of the sith the music wasn't
0: (laughs) as good but it was a good fight
1: yeah yeah it was good i was expecting somebody to get thrown into lava and that didn't happen i was like oh shoot so close (laughs) i will talk about the valkyrie like there was this really kind of neat detail about the valkyrie where people when they saw the trailer come out they're like why is this valkyrie wearing braces
0: (laughs) yeah um, the guy next to me watching the movie he's like is she wearing fucking braces <laughs> they're not braces they're yeah, they're actually
1: they're actually something in archaeology where some vikings literally like scarred their teeth and um put dye in into the the little grooves um, yeah and, and we actually have skulls of this and i think um harold bluetooth i think did it um he was well, like yeah a, he has blue teeth Bluetooth, and and he's where we get the term Bluetooth if it, for people that didn't know that's true. Go. That,
0: yeah, and, and the Bluetooth <laughs> symbol is the rune,
1: yeah. yeah. I, I legit did <laughs> that. I was like, wow, that's that's cool. pretty crazy, right? <laughs> I was like, wow, you're right, it does look like a rune, yeah. yeah. And and Thursday is Thursday, right? Thursday is Thursday. I it took me a while to figure out that Sunday is literally like the sun's day, like Helios's day, yeah. Cool. It's still around, <laughs> man, it's still it's, around. It's cool seeing like the that that our culture is like a fusion of a lot of pagan and Christian stuff. Um, Yeah. And it's impossible to get rid of a lot of it because it's just it's so deeply ingrained. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, this movie, though, is bombing terribly. Oh, yeah. It's like a 40 million loss or something for the studio. Yeah.
0: So if you do want films to actually care about archaeology and like be original, like go check it out
1: yeah yeah it, it's it's not for everyone i'll admit it's pretty violent it's pretty like brutal um but it's great i i really enjoyed it and like you can tell that the, they really cared about archaeology and stuff and i was like wow that's a, it's a it's a win because you don't get those a lot you know you get a yeah. lot of like um like shows where they, they just don't care they put everybody in in black leather uh outfits or whatever and don't care about like what's the spirit period specific clothing or anachronisms and it's paid off it's good
0: yeah it's not braveheart
1: <laughs> braveheart <laughs> yeah uh, yeah but it's good it's good check it yeah, out def-
0: definitely recommend it. it it's very cool very stylized um you know it it has like a purpose and a clear creative vision and it has some really cool old world um both themes art styles like thoughts in it so yeah there you go. Okay. That, and that's the <laughs> Norseman or whatever it's called, the Northmen. And now it's time for another Plastic Sword podcast intro. Okay, now we have a guest on our show. i um, one of my friends and a pretty cool guy, Jonathan. How about you introduce yourself, uh, Jonathan? Hi, I'm Jonathan. Yeah, that's a great introduction. Um, so I met Jonathan while we were um, helping to organize and create the March for Science several years ago. Uh, Jonathan was one of the like original people that helped kind of create the idea and the thrust for the movement. Um, he's also an actual bona fide scientist. Um, do you mind telling the audience your bona fides in the sciences Jonathan uh
3: sure um, I teach at a medical school um, about uh, renal physiology. I do research on on essentially bio uh, essentially ion channel biophysics so how sodium ions move from uh, the, the inside of the nephron in the kidney to back to the blood, which controls the reabsorption of water, which influences blood pressure. Uh, so I do, I do all sorts of things. I do molecular biology. I do electrophysiology. Uh, and I, I guess I do stuff like the March for Science, which uh, I don't know what to call that, but it's something I do. <laughs> Yeah, it was some kind of activism
0: we try, we tried to do. I mean, how how do you, how do you feel about that nowadays? Cuz like to me I I don't know. I I feel kind of down on it and I'm worried if it was good or bad. Um but some days I feel better about it. Like how how do you feel about the version of um like science activism that was popular like 4 or 5 years ago?
3: Um I mean, I have mixed feelings mm-hmm. about it, probably like you do uh my I think I think we probably have very similar ideas about what science activism should be uh which is science is kind of an inherent good you know knowing what's true is good and having the tools to to figure out what's what's true is good and yeah you know, yes we do need to be careful when science gives us something like nuclear weapons or napalm that it gets used responsibly. But it can also you know, make us live longer and have more food and solve environmental problems. So my my vision was that we would see this uh, issue in, in – at the time, Washington. I had a fairly narrow focus, which was um, scientists would go and protest what was happening uh, with appointments in government agencies uh, at the time um, – Scott Pruitt and the EPA and and things like that. And we would, you know, have our list of demands that would – and our list of, you know, listen to the evidence about climate change, listen to the evidence about GMOs are safe, we need nuclear power to solve the climate crisis, um, Mm -hmm. things along those lines. And then uh, what I found was that over time, the people who – who saw March for science as a vehicle for their activism, not all of them were on board with those messages and those ideas. Um, So the, the March for science we ended up with, I think there were a lot of people it was important to, and it gave them a template for how to advocate for themselves with, you know, and as a scientist or as a science enthusiast. And I think that was great. Um, But I do wish we had, um, we had found a way to do it where it didn't become as tied into standard li- left liberal causes, um, yeah. and I say that as someone who's very left liberal. Yeah. yeah. Um,
0: Similar concerns. Cause it seems to me like there's a discordance between like being an um, advocate for something and then trying to like, and then science itself, because science is a very like. Nuance, like needling, safe thing that tries not to make bold claims, and it's a lot of you know that depends, or in some circumstances, or we're beginning to think this. It, it's kind of looking for like trends in, in you know large data sets and stuff. Or activism is very much about making a point, kind of crystallized and for the moment and passionate. And obviously, there's lots of things I'm an advocate for, and and do you know, and use that kind of rhetoric. But it seems like it's really hard to make that work with science. And and it seems like the original idea like we had, you had specifically was, you know, a march with scientists and it kind of became a march for science, which the left kind of took to mean the right sucks at science. Let's march and make fun of them, which I think kind of didn't work well for what at least what I wanted and for I think what you wanted too, And I think a lot of actual working scientists wanted for it so
3: right um and it's a really it's a really hard argument to go against when someone says well this shouldn't just be for scientists you know we'll have more people show up if we make this more inclusive right and we do want science to be inclusive you know and people will say things like everyone can be a scientist if they ask questions and are willing to change their mind and explore and and that's true Um, But there's also, you know, the professional class of people who do science for a living, which is something else. Um, As skeptics, I think we talk about uh, the bullshit asymmetry principle sometimes. Mm -hmm. You know, it's – it's way easier to to make a spurious claim than it is to refute that claim because yeah. to refute the claim, you need multiple lines of evidence and experiments and all that, mm-hmm. uh, whereas the bullshitter can just make something up. Yeah, and and that, kind that, of this- that
0: tactic is used in debates a lot, of course, called the gish gallop, you know, popular and creationist um, apologetics where they explain like, oh, explain how these 10 things evolved and if you can't do it, then there's a god. And you're like, well, it's going to take me like three hours to explain all that shit. But you only have 30 minutes, so you lose, you know.
3: Right. And and we kind of get into the same problem with with protest, where uh, protest lends itself to pithy sayings and and, uh, you know, very straightforward ideas, clear cut goals and the scientific hemming and hawing and adding qualifiers uh makes it hard for people to understand what you want. Mm-hmm. Uh and I'm I'm that kind of person where I want to to make myself completely understood and cover all my bases and not give the reviewers anything to 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 give me a negative peer review on. Uh, so so then when it comes back to to developing a protest and what does that mean? Yeah, you know, it's real easy to get into the weeds of you know we need this many porta potties on the path, and we, um, you we have the P- Department of Transportation calling us about using the this street versus this street, and we don't know yet, and uh, we have this organization that wants to partner with us but it make us look bad, but this other one has already partnered with us that does make us look bad. So, at a, a certain point, it becomes hard to do the big. Orchestration of the vision of what something is, and then you have multiple people around with their own visions. So, so to go back to your earlier questions, I have I still have mixed feelings about what it became, yeah. mm. and I do wonder with COVID, um, you know, what if we had been an effective march for science, uh, and we had we had found a way to reach people with a message about science, and instead of having two years of people. Making their identity tied to not wearing a mask and not getting vaccinated, we had been effective in in messaging people about vaccines.
0: What uh, do you have any opinion on that, Trey? Kind of like this possible discordance between um, science and its nuance and um, advocacy for science, which is kind of more sharpened and less, you know,
1: more emotional. Yeah,
0: because no, I, 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 I you do, go. of course, videos that have you know an advocacy approach to them. So. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. It's it, science is really hard to to talk about in like the political arena because it's just like it, it's it's becomes like so polarizing, and and science is not that. Science is very like nuanced and and it's based on evidence and discussion and and like people like turn it into like um like you're you're rooting for your team now like in politics. It's just like it's the, it's a very exhausting situation to talk about science and, and deal it in politics. Cause like people will just deny evidence and deny like expert opinion and stuff. Definitely.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just frustrating. I've, I've become very disillusioned with like trying to get science, uh, better science education or, or representation and in politics because a lot of times there people just don't know what they're talking about. And I feel like, like politics and advocacy, they want to stir people up. They want it to be very black and white. And, and these are the bad guys. These are the good guys. And it's hard to do that when you actually break things down and in science and stuff. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a bigger, sorry.
3: I think there's a bigger problem with, with trying to advocate, especially online, People have these sort of pre-programmed categories for arguments that they want to respond to, and they're they're searching what you you say for shibboleths like that will indicate that you're pro-gun or anti-gun or that you're uh, pro-choice or anti-choice or or whatever. And once they decide you're in that category, they have their pre-canned response to that category, and. You know, Having these sort of cognitive lanes that you can jump to, to to very quickly decide what something is and respond to it that way, it, it makes you feel like you're winning internet arguments. But it's really not very good for reaching the truth, which mm. is what scientists want to do. So it's it's a really frustrating thing, I think, to be a scientist on the internet yeah, sometimes.
2: Yes.
1: I definitely agree with that.
3: I think
0: <laughs> that Twitter has been a disaster for all enlightenment values. <laughs> 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 like everything we wanted to build in society, I think Twitter is the opposite of it. But
1: I, I oh. think... I think like as like um an example I I've, I've noticed with like my family members they take like scientists like the level like of nuance and and caution that scientists put into their research where they they talk about possible and plausible and, and and stuff like that and then their their projections into the future they take like that bit of um like caution that scientists have where like they don't want to make claims without evidence and they don't want to like make false statements um, they take that like, oh, it's possible. Look, the scientists don't know what they're talking about. And it's like that's not that's not it. Like they want they want scientists to be like one absolutely certain, one hundred percent on things, and and you just don't do that sort of claims in science.
0: Yeah, that's why every monster quest they can get a scientist to say, well, I guess it's possible they're out there, you know? Right? Because they're like, yeah, I mean, I suppose so. Because you know, it's very difficult to prove a negative. You have to define your parameters like extremely tight to do so. Right, um, Jonathan. Specifically on this topic, um, you wrote a book about the history of anti-vaxxers. Um, what, what was the what was the process of actually making that? And then, can you talk a little bit about the um, reception and ramifications of that? I know you did a lot of interviews about it. So,
3: uh, sure. So, I wrote a book. It's called "Anti-Vaxxers: How to Challenge a Misinformed Movement." You can get it probably from a library um, or if you must, Amazon, I guess, or, or other places, <laughs> LibGen, uh, places that have books. <laughs> um, I probably shouldn't say that. Spend money, buy, consume. Uh, the uh, What did Bill Cypher say? Reality is a hologram, buy, gold, buy. <laughs> um, so I, I wanted to, to, to do a project where... I wouldn't have as many cooks in the kitchen. I could have uh, oversight over myself and and say something for myself. And so I went to uh, MIT Press and I had a proposal for a book about the history of science activism. And it wasn't very well reviewed, I think, by the the peer reviewers the proposal because I think they were seeing me as like a molecular biologist coming in and trying to write a sociology book. Uh, So I went back to the drawing board and i said well i know a fair amount about uh the anti-vaccine movement it's something that's really interesting to me and there had been an anti-vaxxer in a a fairly prominent position in the march for science structure um which was something i had said you know we should get rid of this person and the other people who had power in that organization didn't agree uh so it had kind of fascinated me how someone could think they had a pro-science stance but also have uh a worldview that included, uh, ideas that were not scientific. So I, I started, you know, taking notes on that and that eventually st- became a book. Um, so if you are interested, so it wasn't really a history of the anti-vaccine movement. Uh, that was part of it. I was, what I was trying to show was that the arguments that anti-vaccine movement used, uh, have historical parallels so if you go back to 19th century where there were anti-vaxxers using a lot of the same arguments that anti-vaxxers use today uh, arguments about personal choice and government overreach and not knowing what's in vaccines and arguments trying to deny statistics and that's almost identical to what we see now or in what we saw in 2018 when i was writing uh so that book was slated to come out in 2020. And I, th- I had the misfortune, I think, of my book about anti vaxxers coming out during the COVID 19 pandemic. Yeah, that wasn't uh, planned at all. So. Oh. No. So I, I started getting um, a lot of unwanted attention uh, mm. from, from it because um, I had, after the March for Science, I had wanted to do my quiet retirement from public life.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean that was pretty stressful, you know. Like, oh. I mean, I didn't probably get it as much as you, but it, it was a pretty stressful time after that, man. I just kind of wanted to not talk to people for a little bit. So,
3: oh yeah, I think in the three months of March for Science, I gained seventy pounds, uh, yeah. and I, you know, I, 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 I was, I was barely sleeping. Uh, so at, afterwards, it just took me a few months to to feel like normal and not have nightmares every night anymore.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh. yeah. Don't, don't make a, don't try to put together a big political rally Trey. That's, that's <laughs> my advice to you, my young friend. That sounds awful.
1: Yeah. It's terrible.
3: <laughs> I mean, I complain about oh. that, but you know, there are people who have like actual bad things happen to them.
2: <laughs>
0: so, sure. So well, we I had that? a creationist creationist lady try to, like get me kicked out of the whole thing because like she thought it wasn't fair that I thought she shouldn't have a lot of power cuz she was a creationist. So
3: yeah was... <laughs> I had I had run ins with creationists uh Discovery Institute was trying to partner with the March for Science and Oh
2: yeah. Oh really? When I yeah,
3: it, yeah. and then the uh the, the partnerships group had no idea who they were so they were halfway through like sending them a form to fill out. And I was like, guys, you guys, please don't, don't do this. And then they wrote a whole article about how I had personally like kicked Christians out of the March for science. I was like, okay it? guys, like I, I'm not, I'm not religious, but you know, it, it's cool. Be whatever. Just don't try to use our platform to spread creationism. <laughs> Dang. Yeah,
1: we, we love the Discovery Institute. They're great.
2: I'm sure you do. <laughs> yeah.
3: Is
1: that, is that with, um? oh, it didn't, didn't Ben Stein or, or something do, do a piece on them or something like that? There was uh, a documentary.
0: Ben Stein did a big creationist uh, video where he right. had like Dawkins and, and stuff in it where they like lied to him about what questions they were asking and stuff. <laughs> like, they basically asked him if there's any possibility that panspermia happened, and he kind of said yes, and they're like, could you explain what it'd be like if it did? And he's like, sure. And then they're like, see? like Even Dawkins thinks that like evolution doesn't describe lies. He thinks something else had to bring it here.
1: Oh, God. And how did that
4: happen? I told you, we don't know. So you have no idea how it started? No, no. no nor has anybody. Nor has anyone nor has else. else. What do you think is the possibility that, there, that intelligent design might turn out to be uh, the answer to some issues in uh, genetics or in, uh, well, in evolution. It could come about in the following way. It could be that uh, at some earlier time, somewhere in the universe, a civilization I- evolved by probably some kind of Darwinian means to a very, very high level of technology and designed a form of life that they seeded onto perhaps this, this planet. Um, now, th- that is a possibility and a, an a intriguing possibility. Mm. And I suppose it's possible that you might find evidence for that. If you look at the, um, at the detail, details of biochemistry and molecular biology, you might find a signature of some sort of designer. Wait a second. Richard Dawkins thought intelligent design might be a legitimate pursuit? Um, and that designer could well be a higher intelligence from elsewhere in the universe. Well, but okay. that higher intelligence would itself have had to have come about by some explicable or ultimately explicable process. It couldn't have just jumped into existence spontaneously. That's the point. So, Professor Dawkins was not against intelligent design, just certain types of designers, such as
0: God. Yeah.
1: Uh,
0: They're just fucking a, liars, to be honest. Yeah, it's
1: it's a, a, a rich tapestry of people out there.
0: There's a big old squirrel outside my window. Are you sure it's not a rat? No. Yes, <laughs> yes. It's just a big fluffy squirrel, always looking at me. Hey, buddy. Oh, I oh, wish you could see this squirrel. He's such Would a
1: have busted through the window and attacked you, Miles. Ah!
0: <laughs> I'd fight it and win. What are you talking about?
1: <laughs> it's true. Yeah, yeah. They're not super smart.
3: Yeah. So, <laughs> as Miles mentioned, I did have to switch. I think off podcast. I did have to switch to a. To a fake username on facebook uh, i was getting i was getting occasional death threats i still occasionally do get those uh but i i had one anti-vaxxer in particular in the town i live in who was calling my boss trying to get me fired uh oh. from from my university position so i i just started, decided to go in a little bit uh incognito for the duration of the pandemic uh mm.
0: That's what you get for trying to defend science.
3: It is, yeah. No one loves right. you for 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 taking science seriously.
0: No, it's yeah. it's pe- people like to say they like science, but as soon as you're like the thing you like actually isn't true, they're like, "Hey, fuck you." So
3: <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of value to the to the imprimatur of saying science. Uh, yeah, and you know, if you look at the Pew did a, a survey, something like. 90% of people say they love science, but also something like 75% of people hold some at least one paranormal belief, according to the Baylor Religion Survey. So there's a huge- People believe in vampires. People believe in vampires. I
1: was just looking at
3: 13% yeah. of Americans believe vampires are real. So-
1: People like science like until it makes them uncomfortable, yeah, it like, makes them question their predetermined beliefs, It's like yeah, <laughs> they're okay with it until it makes them start questioning what they hold dear, I guess uh,
0: yeah, what do those lab coats know, you know,
1: <laughs>
3: yeah, I think ultimately people like the things science gives them and the life it gives them, and they like the idea of science. But they like the idea of science backing up what they want to believe. So if you're someone who who does biblical archaeology, then you think science backs up your belief in the ark is real or whatever.
0: Right. Yeah, because like we like last episode we talked about this guy who goes looking to prove all this stuff in Exodus was real. But when he's looking for evidence, he sends in DNA to test chromosomes. You know, and I'm just like, what do you guys know or care about DNA or chromosomes? Like, no religious culture in the world brought this up at all. None of you brought this up. Like, the people who proved there was no God brought this up. So why are you guys coming to us for? You know, they want to. They, they basically want a handout from science, so we can give them some of our credibility. But oh, fuck off. I you
3: don't remember the part I, of uh, the part of the Bible where they karyotype Noah? <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> I I think the most beautiful thing about science is like that it's okay to be wrong. Like it's not it shouldn't be it's not like this big like terrible thing to just admit that like, oh with new evidence we've corrected our model. And I think that's most of-, most of the time,
0: hopefully. You know, sometimes sometimes people are petty about it, but
1: <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. But when people see that, people go like, Oh, you are wrong. People in the 1800s had bad science. That means, that means you don't know anything. It's like, Oh gosh. Yeah. yeah. People, so, um, I think a lot of people, especially religious people don't understand the m- importance of admitting that you're wrong and, and not everything is like dogmatic. It doesn't need to be uh, just like with the, the unquestionable. Nothing's unquestionable. I don't know. Eh, go trailing.
0: No, you're good, buddy. You're right. <laughs> you're right. You know, like, I think that they say, well, they're like, well, why is your authority better than our authority if it got things wrong sometimes, you know, they're like, cause my authority I'm claiming can never be wrong. So obviously it's right. Right. (laughs) I'm just like, yeah, but it matters if it's actually right or wrong. Not, not, not just the claim, you know, you, you claiming to have an all knowing, perfect authority doesn't really mean anything because it doesn't actually help predict real things about the world. So science does like Darwin predicted that a certain bird most likely exists because of a flower that he saw. And he's like, oh, I bet you there's some bird that that drinks down this sweet-ass flower. And then, you know, 40 years later, they find the bird. Yeah. Jesus didn't do that.
1: Jesus barely ever talked about birds. I don't think he liked birds. He talked about the birds once, about like them uh, not being depressed or something. Yeah. The birds don't get depressed. (laughs) Yeah. But they probably do. (laughs) They probably do. He's probably wrong about that. In
0: fact... (laughs) i'm gonna talk about a sad bird right now and now the story of the great god bird one of the most recognizable birds in north america that was lost and then possibly rediscovered and then lost again
2: in the delta sun down in arkansas it's the great god bird with its all call and the sewing machine The industrial god On the great by you where they saw it fall It's the
0: So, Trey, a long time ago, mm-hmm. in the mid pleistocene era, there was a great woodpecker called the Imperial Woodpecker. And from that evolved this really beautiful bird that we call the Ivory Bill Woodpecker, right? Mm-hmm. Th- this, this, is, this is one of the best birds you've ever seen in your life. We're talking two and a half foot tall, three foot wingspan. The males have a beautiful red crown on their head. They have an a ivory-looking, large, like pecker <laughs> and uh yeah they they um are often described as having a little white backpack because like the bottom tips of their wings are white A large bird the largest woodpecker in all north america um humans as soon as they started coming into contact with these birds they loved them native americans they knew the bird well and they'd use their feathers and skull for decorative purposes they, we don't know for sure um before settlers came but after settlers came, there's definitely accounts of them hunting the birds for these purposes. But even before um, European settlers came, the, the the bills and the feathers were so prized. We've even found some of them all the way up in Michigan. Um, oh. And the actual like terrain of these birds, where they live, is the South. You know, Arkansas, Florida panhandle, that area. So mm-hmm. like like the, these were some top primo items um the bird was first described the ivory-billed woodpecker, in 1731 by naturalist mark catsby and um he was a naturalist in history of carolina and florida and the bahamas and you know he's one of those guys that went out there back in the day with the sweet outfits and would draw all the beautiful pictures of birds and and you know flowers and all that stuff he's seen so that was the first time like europeans really documented it right, right. and then um then Audubon himself, John Audubon, the guy that the Audubon Society is named after, right? Like the captain of all birds, um, he was rafting down the Ohio River one day, and he found in the south what he called a moss-covered primeval forest. Right? This is yeah, this is the area that um, sometimes we call the Amazon of North America. This is this big cypress forest that is like there's snakes and there, there's crocodiles. And all kinds of stuff down there. It's really awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, he mentioned the many, many um, native birds that were found there and, and the great, you know, dead hardwood trees and everything. He, he also mentioned seeing the ivory billed woodpeckers in his journal. Um, sad thing, though, is he uh, he shot a few of them, which uh-huh. is, yeah, kind of sad to hear. Like the godfather of like North American birding, like shot this legendary bird. But, you know, they, back then they thought there was a lot of them, not a big deal. So
1: it, the, was, it, was the, it was the style of the times?
4: We can't bust heads like we used to, but we have our ways. Oh, yeah. oh, you got it. One trick is to tell them stories that don't go anywhere. Like the time I caught the ferry over to Shelbyville, I needed a new heel for my shoe. So I decided to go to Morganville, which is what they call Shelbyville in those days. So I tied an onion to my belt, which was the style at the time. Now, to take the ferry cost a nickel. And in those days, nickels had pictures of bumblebees on them. Give me five bees for a quarter, you'd say. Now, where were we? Oh, yeah. The important thing was that I had an onion on my belt, which was the style at the time. They didn't have white onions because of the war. The only thing you could get was those big yellow ones.
0: It was the style at the time. Yeah, <laughs> So they, he, they shot a few to capture them, you know, not just for sport. It, but it was a scientific shooting.
3: Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah.
1: Darwin did this, yeah.
3: <laughs> so if you look at, like, the Audubon watercolors of birds, those are all dead birds. Like, he yeah. he went out and killed them and, like, posed the dead bodies and then painted them. So in in naturalism, in especially in birds, it's there's a lot of historical precedent for if you want to look at something, you just kill it, bring it home.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah, and, and so um, he noted that they were quite lively if he tried to capture them alive, and they would peck with their beak and their claws, which they look like raptor claws from like Jurassic Park, because I guess they are, but you know they look like that. They look like monstrous claws. They're pretty damn strong, and so that they would they would cut you pretty good if you tried to capture them and he said that if um you, you shot them they would make and i quote a mournful cry like a dying child so, so yeah yeah he he also commonly called them van dykes after um the flemish broke painter anthony van dyke who'd use a very distinct red and white black contrast in his work cuz this bird has has that look you know like um like a more modern pop culture thing would be like in sin city where they have like the black and white but then like the stark red and that—that's what the males of the species look like. So he also noted that they would sometimes uh, hang from like grapevines and like just hang down and, and chill and eat a bunch of grapes. I thought that was cute. So the ivory billed woodpecker is its official name and what it, it's most often called, but they have many different names, including um, the log cock, <laughs> the <laughs> log good. god, uh, okay. Indian hen, the Kent, the Kate. Um, But one of its most common names, and I think one of its most poetic, is the Lord God bird, which Mm. it is called that because when people say it, see it, they would say, Lord God, what a bird. Wow. Yeah. So I always like the Lord God bird name for it, especially because as you're going to learn, there's some mystery surrounding this bird. I think that that name kind of adds to the mystery. Um, So. It's most populated areas were near rivers and streams or swamps in northern Florida, uh, the Appalachian River, the Panhandle, like um, Big Bend, um, areas like that. All And there was some in Southern California in the past, but not very recently. Like I said before, the species, you know, big bird, 20 inches tall, three foot wingspan, um, largest woodpecker in North America. Uh, notable, you know, for its brilliant coloring. It, it's sharp red. Like, like really, if you if you are to this, just just Google if you don't know what it looks like the bird, because it, it it's really a beautiful look and it's hard to just describe. Um, mm. One thing about these birds is they required a massive amount of land to feed, you know, and they re- reproduce very slowly. So like they're kind of like pandas in that way that like they're not doing a lot of lot to help themselves have big numbers. Um, there's some other woodpecker peckers that have a similar niche that outnumber them population wise, even in the past, like 60 to one. So yeah, this was never a species that was super populous. Um, and, cause I said they're, they're quite large for their size. They're notable for, um, liking high up big dead trees. Sometimes they're, they're called the disaster bird because like hurricanes or forest fires, um, would be really good for them because they like the big high deadwood and they would just strip, um, bark off of all these trees and eat all the grubs and, and beetles under the um, the bark. And we know what they ate, even though we have seen them before, because this, again, this is a, a, a real bird, Um, because when we have specimens, which we still have today, we can see what was actually in their digestive tract at the time. So wow. in, the, in the 1800s, um, it was notice of their decline started. People started saying, hey, I ain't seen no more of those big, cool birds around. And this is with, of course, the increase of European settlers and colonialism. Also, really importantly, the Civil War changed the South when it um, because the South, of course, had its enslaved, you know, really unethical economy. Mm -hmm. And it had it was forced to change after the Civil War into a more industrial economy, which brought in more logging. So a lot of its habitat was lost because of that. Um, Mm -hmm. So they got rarer and people kept shooting them, um, partly because they look cool and people just shot the bird to check it out. Or that, and, and as they did that, they became rarer and rarer and um, more of an oddity. So more people would shoot them. The prices of its feathers would go up. And yeah. And also there was reports of some people shooting them to eat them because, you know, they're pretty big. So you get a good bite of an ivory-billed woodpecker. Mm. Um, <laughs> but yeah. So by 1924, in Florida specifically, the bird was thought to be completely extinct. But author August Allen found two mating pairs in a tree. He, reper- he reported his findings to a local taxidermist who promptly shot and killed them. Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, good news. We still have two. The guy's like, no problem. I can get on that. Done. Oh, Dead. God. So, yeah, not, not my favorite. Um, but in 1935, James T. Tanner, he, he spent about six months traveling America and recording the calls of endangered birds because there was a lot of birds that were important to american culture up to that point that you know their numbers were becoming um, much lower there's the carolina parakeet which is a beautiful bird that it's just ridiculous that they're they're gone because there were so plenty of them yeah you know, oh, this
1: is a, what? hey, what's that oh yeah, i was just agreeing with you yeah yeah, yeah.
0: yeah they they're really you know brightly colored um parakeet that was an a, you know a native american bird and it's just gone and so right. like he he went to try to catalog all these birds calls in 1935 and most of our direct observations of the ivory-billed woodpecker comes from his missions so he was a graduate student at the time and when he and it came time to go look for the lord god bird he found them in the land owned by the Singer Sewing Company. Now, now, some of you may know this company because your grandmother or mother has one of their sewing machines. They're the black ones with the really embroidered embroidered and elegant look to them. Um, mm. They were very popular for a long time and are still kept because of their kind of exquisite beauty. So he, he would record whole days of the bird's lives, so their calls, how they acted, what they ate. And one time he even found an ivory bill in a nest, like a brand newborn. A young male, and so he wanted to to band it. Banding is basically tagging it. Um, so the young Mister Tanner climbed the sixty foot cypress tree, and he uh, he banded the little hatchling. But the little hatchling got curious, and when he was climbing his way down, he went to look over the ledge and fell down. Um, oh my god. Mr. Tanner was freaked out, thought that he just killed one of these birds and he couldn't believe it. But luckily he ran over to it and he found it landed in a soft bush and it was okay. So, (laughs) So, yeah, so so he wrapped it up in the bandanas that he had in his shirt and he climbed all the way back up that tree with him and he put him in there and he ended up naming the bird Sunny Boy and they were friends. And you can see pictures of like the um, actual bird like hanging out on his head and his shoulder and stuff so
1: <laughs> I think I saw one of those yeah that's yeah.
0: great So it was basically his little pokemon um, <laughs> and uh, he would travel. And, and Mr. Tanner would travel all across the south in his little model A roadster um, trying to find as many living as he could. He, he was able to record the the bird's call. Which is really important because this call has been used throughout the years, almost a hundred years now, because this was in the thirties, so getting up to that to try to find this bird. Much like people do with Bigfoot, trying to put Bigfoot calls out in the you know, nature to find Bigfoot or, you know, animals that actually exist. That's um, right. Yeah. People do that
1: with um Tasmanian uh tiger stuff too. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. But this is interesting because like unlike you know the cryptids, um, this is a real bird, so. Yeah. Um he was able to record the call and like I said it helped summon other birds. Um but in all this time he was only able to find 22 birds. Oof. So that that shows even then in 35, right? So this is before World War II that there there was not many. You know this 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 beautiful bird that was important to humans in the Americas for a long time was was on its way out. Um so where did they found Much of where they found almost all these birds, like their main habitat, was what is called the Singer Tract, and these were these um, these the Cypress um, forest that was owned by Singer, the sewing company, right? And um, after Tanner's studies in the Chicago Mill, a lumber company bought the Singer Tract and wanted to cut it all down. Oh God! And this is where the birds lived, right? This is like their one home. However, FDR himself. I wanted to help, and he raised money with a few of the senators, and they got enough money to buy the land back. Yeah. Right? However, the Chicago Mill said, ah, fuck you. Oh, fuck those guys. They <laughs> said, we're from Chicago. <laughs> we don't do deals with yous, and they wouldn't sell, and they just cut the land down anyway so they could make like boxes to sell tea in.
1: Fuck those guys. Jeez, yeah.
0: Up. Yeah. So, um, and Tanner and his wife, uh, Nancy Tanner, um, went down to go see the birds one Christmas break, hoping that there might be some there after it was cut. They saw Sonny sunny boy again, which was a great joy to them. Uh, but he was all alone. There's just the one male and they, they found one other male with a female and a few hatchlings, but, wow. and, but that's all they found. And that was the last time, um, they would ever see the ivory bills again. And, and now that plaque of land, that singer-tracked, is just a soybean field.
1: That sucks. Yep. It's, if you, That's a terrible story. That's awful. If
0: you went <laughs> to that kind of like legendary place where the, these animals that are, are so sought after and, and missed today, you wouldn't see this ancient forest of 150-foot tall hardwood trees or, or these beautiful birds. It's just a soybean field. It's It's completely unrecognizable from its natural past. So
1: that reminds me of um, if you ever look up the story of what happened to the last like great onk uh, population.
0: Yeah. You 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 can tell the story real quick if you want.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. So the great onks, they were these uh, flightless uh, puffin relatives, I think. They're essentially like the penguins of uh, northern Atlantic Ocean. And um, they were hunted for their feathers because people just liked how they looked and the last the last like living population was on this island the name of it escapes my mind but like we know that they clubbed one um one of the last ones and then as they're like leaving like the uh fur traders or feather traders i guess um like tripped over like a a rock or something and like like broke the last like great onk egg and it's just like oh it's like it's another example that we're like there's this greed and and just for no reason, it's like you killed these things just for a little bit more money. And with just, the dodos, we just ate them all because they're apparently too delicious. The the dodos eating it was uh, I think it was less the eating It was more of like invasive species like well, that
0: also do it.
1: Yeah, I, I heard that dodos actually tasted bad. People didn't. Oh, really? I've heard they were delicious, but maybe oh. I'm wrong. Maybe we'll see. Maybe it's like a debate that they had back in the day. <laughs> yeah, maybe,
0: maybe, maybe it's an acquired taste. So opinions differ on the taste of Dodo. Well, why don't we just go find one and, and test it? Yeah, we should be Dodo cryptids. Like that, that's the new cryptid. That's a thing. Yeah. Those yeah. Those, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> those so, people have existed for centuries, Dodo so, cryptid enthusiasts.
0: So, anyways, um, yeah. up to 1944. So this is actual World War II now. Mm. Um, this is the last confirmed ivory bill. Um, Don Eckleberry, who was a uh, artist and birder, saw one and then he painted what he saw at the singer track. And this was a fine. His wife went, went with him to go find this bird. And she commented that the last bird that they ever saw looked almost insane. Very intense. Um, Not like the ones recorded before. And this was the last time anyone had ever seen one alive. So almost insane yes that was her exact quote she said they they saw this bird which was the last female ever seen and the bird was very intense and looked almost insane
1: oh yeah i can only imagine like what being the last member of your species would do to you
0: yeah we, we of course don't know if they were the last actual member of their species or not but it you could imagine and now we might be putting some human emotions on this that this was the last female and they were recklessly looking for a mate and could never find one so that's mm. definitely possible, and a very tragic thing to imagine. So, oh.
1: um,
0: then important overall to the story in 1973, the founding of the Endangered Species Act happened um, because you know people started realizing that we were losing um, important animals in this country. Mm. Um, and then in 2004. So all these years later, last one ever seen was 1944. They were deemed most likely extinct and pretty much gone from consciousness. People remembered seeing them. They would be in birding books sometimes, and birding books have always been very popular in North America. Um, But this bird at this point kind of had a a pretty legendary stance of it's an extinct bird. You're not going to find one, but they would still put them in fielding guides, almost like a hopeful thing, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So in 2004, private donors helped fund a five-month expedition of biologists and bird experts. Uh, they set up camera traps, auto recording, surveys, all kinds of stuff in Arkansas. And there were many reports from this crew of actually seeing the bird. People would come back to camp and say they saw it. And then they say, well, you got a photo? No. <laughs> They're like, okay, we'll try to do better next time. Then the next person would say, hey, I saw it. I got my binoculars on it. I saw it up close. It was definitely it. They're like, oh, that's great. Did you get a photo? No. And so the director down at the time is like, Hey, next time don't use your goddamn binoculars. (laughs) Put your camera on the bird guys. All right. Yeah. Cause that's what we're trying to do here. (laughs) (laughs) And so, um, one of the guys who's down here doing this had his camera on the whole time sitting in his kayak. Right. And he's going through the swamp and then the camera picks up a Lord God bird flying just to the left down by the water on a tree and off up into camera. Now this video is only four seconds long, and I'm looking at it now. It's very very grainy. It's yes, a, it, it's an SD video. It's not an HD video,
1: and it's only four seconds long. Um, is the identification of the Lord God bird? Is that is that certain? Well, well. Oh, oh am I? So, please stay. Ahead. Please stay tuned. <laughs>
0: I'm um, jumping ahead. <laughs> so, Dr. John Fitzpatrick, Fitzpatrick, right? He's the director of ornithology at Cornell. And they're the people who put this whole thing together, right? Cornell is like really known for its bird love and scientists, and they're the ones who really wanted to um, find the Lord God Bird, uh, take the credit for it, you know, get this kind of win for conservation. This win, kind of, for the American heart and spirit too. This, like I talked along, that this longing for the wilderness and and hoping that things that are past or sins that we've had of a society would kind of be rectified and they would like Lazarus back from the dead. You know, I think that that it's understandable to be the one, to want to find that thing. Right.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so they watched the video and they said, it's real. He's like, that's it. That's the Lord God bird. So this bird was found outside of the town of Brinkley, which was a small town. It was not quite a ghost town, but you know, not doing that well. Right. Cause it had existed because like it was an intersection of like the railroads a long time ago. Um, but a massive amount of tourists like came to this town and interests like national media organizations, birders from everywhere, even Europe came in because this announcement of the Lord Godbird being found, right? That this town even started giving haircuts to look like the ivory billed woodpecker. What? <laughs> what? <laughs>
2: yeah. And
0: they had a, they had a shop there called the world's only ivory billed woodpecker gift shop. They, uh, sold ivory billed woodpecker hamburgers not made out of ivory-billed woodpecker of course hopefully hopefully yeah we we did find one it was delicious we turned Uh, it into a burger yeah so you know thanks for coming um so, so this town got really invested in change overnight right so press releases went out press conferences were held all these headlines about this bird found back from the dead right and all this was funded by by the cornell the Cornell lab and and they were really kind of focused on this whole discovery operation. But, but the local fish and wildlife um, department, um, they even like were participating in these press conferences saying that it was discovered. And Laura Bush, the first lady at the time, George Bush's wife was even going to be the one to make um, the announcement. Oh she was going to come down here. Yeah. And announce that the Lord Godbird, the ivory woodpecker, you know, she was going to say, we got him instead of Rumsfeld um <laughs> ladies and gentlemen <laughs> <laughs> yeah we got him um but here's the thing when they had the video they all talked about it they were writing their paper right and they didn't want to tell a lot of people because they were afraid it was going to leak which it did and so they didn't have time to get laura bush down there so they kind of had to do this press release early before oh. everything really got worked out on the paper they wanted to talk to um because it didn't really get time to be rebutted uh, or properly peer reviewed, although it was published in Science, like the actual Journal of Science itself, hmm. like Capital S Science, right? Right. Um, and and Doctor Jerome Jackson, who's the world expert on ivory bills, like like well respected um, ivory bill science masterman, he was um, he was shown this four second video, and he was really excited. However, when he read the paper in Science and he looked at the figure one on the paper, which you can go look at today if you want, uh, it shows the bird's wings. Right. This four second video, the first figure, we see uh, the large left side of the bird and it's white all the way down. Now, here's the thing. There's another woodpecker in this area with somewhat similar shape and color. It's called the pileated woodpecker. They're they're not as big. Much smaller. They're not quite as cool. They don't take up as much ground, a little bit different color. But they don't have white at the bottom of them like our ivory build does, right? Mm -hmm. But when they spread their wings out, the bottom of it has white all the way down pretty much in their bottom. And so they're easily confused by layman's for the ivory build pretty often. And it looks like in this figure, what's happening is we're seeing that side of the pileated woodpecker and not the ivory bill Mm. so yeah so figure one shows the bird's wings the white all up and down um and and dr um said that he found that inconsistent with the lord god bird as i've explained and they were working on a rebuttal paper and they were going to try to explain you know this misidentification however they were pressured because a lot of the other scientists at cornell said the right wing would use this saying that we didn't actually find the bird, um, as a, as a way to argue against protecting these wetlands because they wanted to use the discovery of this like legendary lost bird as a reason to get funding to protect, um, all these wetlands and and this habitat for all these other animals. Right. Right. Yeah. So then Dr. Fitzpatrick, our main guy who was pretty darn confident that, uh, that the video four second video showed the bird, he invited them down. Then he's like, okay. You guys don't like the video. I thought it was pretty good. You guys have questions? Well then check this shit out. And he plays them some bird sounds, right? Now, here's the thing. That they've recorded hours, like just hours of sounds in the forest. And there's lots of stuff in forests, right? You got all kinds of birds, you got hedgehogs, you got raccoons. Who knows what's out there? You got Bigfoots. Yeah, you got skunk apes. Go. Yeah, you got <laughs> you got swamp squatches. You got all you got you got dudes hanging out. Performing murders, aliens—you you don't, you don't even don't have any idea what's out there. Um, so in all these hours, they said like this 10 second little part, definitely an ivory-billed woodpecker. Pick that out of all the noise, found it, done. Right? But here's the thing: that recording they had came from a really early morning. But all known reports of the bird was that they were a particularly particularly late riser. So that kind of didn't jive. And then also, Dr. Herman said that they sounded a little bit too suspiciously like Tanner's recordings from the 30s. Like, almost like someone was playing them. Oh. But regardless, the actual audio quality is not very good. Um, so to my mind, and to many experts' minds, you can't really say what they are. Right it's kind of hard to record ambient sounds in general. Um, For example, the frogs near my house were ridiculously loud the other day. Like, the loudest frogs have ever been in the history of civilization. (laughs) And I wanted to record this to prove to people, but, like, you can't really get a good sense of the sound, you know? Like, it just doesn't really work. Especially on this 2005 recording technology they had. So, (laughs) so, so, anyways, our, our guys who had some questions about these birds and by the way like when they're analyzing these figures like especially figure one in this paper in science they have ivory bills they have access to actual specimens of ivory bills they can take them out of the drawer look at the feathers so they're analyzing like a real specimen to see it's not like when we're trying to look at a blob squatch bigfoot and figure out if it you know meets a, w- what our imagination of a bigfoot is they have a actual specimen right right um anyway so they decide they won't print their rebuttal um, because they don't want to mess up the $10 million that was going to go to this area of land to protect it. Because they're like, well, we don't want to mess with the greater purpose of conservation, right? Which, you know, you can argue if it's the right thing to do or not, but that, that's what happened. Um, mm-hmm. However, one thing that's interesting about this $10 million that the wildlife um, organizations decided to help you know protect the the land for the ivory bill it wasn't just a new 10 million dollars
1: it was moved over for, from protecting other endangered animals oh see that's an important point to 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 note yeah, yeah. <laughs> they took they took it from actual endangered species for one that probably doesn't exist anymore
0: yeah so there, there's um. other animals which we know exist know where they are and people have advocated, and these are their grant projects and stuff, right? And they, they've got funding for them and everything to do these projects and protect their land or do whatever they need to, you know, to help their habitat, is being moved over to protect the ivory-billed woodpecker, which, of course, is a beautiful animal. Like I said, like, kind of is in the heart and soul of desire of people in this country to be around and be protected, but there are no confirmed sightings at this point since 1944. So. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so um, then there's this fellow named um, Tim Gallagher, and he published this book called The Grail Bird, the discovery of the ivory billed woodpecker. And he tracked he um, tracked down some several decade old stories and some sightings that kids saw. And then he went to this, um swamp himself and he said he actually saw one. And he then published this, this account in Nature and, and Gallagher, who also comes from Cornell, um he said he was out there paddling and him and his partner saw one and then they cried about it. But uh they, they yeah. cried about it? Yeah, they cried about it and he was <laughs> like he was super excited. Um but unfortunately did not get a picture of it.
1: That's the thing, they never get one. Yeah.
0: You know. uh. Yeah. Um so basically after that a lot of enthusiasts started coming to the area. Like I said, the town was kind of flourishing. There was like a hype about this, tons of stories on national news, but no real good evidence. You know, we have actual examples of their nests, right? Like we have a, a tree that was cut down that has a nest that an ivory build created, you know, like a woodpecker made a hole in a tree. So we know what they look like. We have their eggs, we know what they look like, but we can't find any of that evidence either, you know, because mm-hmm. like having their actual nest would be huge and that's a non-mobile thing you could track down and we kind of know where they like to put them but still not able to find one um so eventually in 2008 a video in the pier river swamp in louisiana popped up it was taken from tree level over a mossy trunk at a swamp and we can see a small black bird flying over the water there's a reflection of the water in the bird so we're pretty sure that, you know the bird's there Even though know, it's kind of fuzzy shouldn't be any digital trickery. But it is an SD video. Um, The guy said he had an HD camera, but there was too much moisture for it to work that day. So he used the SD camera. Uh, You know, that's what he said.
2: Um, uh, But
0: what it shows is pretty unclear. However, um, Brett Tablaski, who is an expert on birds, um, commented this. He said, I'm confident it is a large woodpecker. I base this conclusion on the small upstroke downstroke span ratio and the pauses and mid stroke during which the bird holds up its wings flexed in a bound posture. This style of flight is consistent with the pallated woodpecker, but I do not think it rules it out being an ivory billed woodpecker. Casual observers of a live bird in the field, i.e., tanner, would likely miss this brief pause even if it were present. There are two fields in which the is considerable white or light gray visible on the upper surface of the wings. These patches of light colored feathers would also seem to be consistent with an ivory billed woodpecker. So that was his claim. Um, He basically said that it might have a kind of flight that Tanner didn't notice. And so that's why it's not consistent with the way he described that it would fly and that it could be plated, but it could be an ivory bill. Um, You can check out this video for yourself if you'd like Mm -hmm. Um, to my mind, it's you can't really tell anything from it at all,
1: right? It it's difficult because it sounds like there's the the species look so similar to one another. It's hard to to tell distinguish between both of them.
0: Yeah, there's definitely telltale signs of an ivory bird, of an ivory billed woodpecker versus the plated woodpecker. But if you have grainy fall off video, it doesn't. You can't really use that, you know, right? Um, it's just not very helpful. So, by 2010, Cornell Labs had stopped the search for the woodpecker. Um, they announced they found it in 2005. People cried. They were really excited. But they uh, never actually found one, apparently. No, no hard evidence. Um, it's also, I'd like to point out this time, that um, uh, Nancy Tanner was the only person alive who had actually seen one of these fly at the time. And she was not given any of this evidence to ask her opinion of it. So I I do find it interesting that like she was left out. Apparently, Cornell Labs thought they couldn't trust her and that she might leak things to the press. So they never really ran anything by her. Although, like I said, at the time, she's the last person to ever see this animal alive. So I kind of I kind of found that kind of sad. Um, yeah. In 2021, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service recommended that the bird be removed from the endangered species list on the count of it being extinct and kind of close the book um, again on the ivory-billed woodpecker. Um, However, one of the reasons I'm talking about it now is in 2012, a brand new paper was published and made a lot of headlines in like popular science reporting or local news stations that the bird had been found. Now, Guess why this happened, Trey? Like, what did this person find that made this so interesting in in national news again?
1: I'm going to guess it's another grainy photo, (laughs) grainy video.
0: Well, it's several very grainy
1: photos and videos. Oh, even grainier than last. This is 2022. Oh, oh, it's the age of of crystal clear photos. Yeah, I have a
0: 4K camera (laughs) right here in my hand.
3: Um... And they're still great. Yeah, Jonathan, you saw some of these videos, right? Uh, so I looked at some of the images in the preprint, um, and they were. I, I I don't know what the the blob squatch of birds is, uh, blobbirds, but it, uh, blobbirds, yeah. But yeah, I mean, you you can't tell much from the. From the images, their trail cam images, right? It's uh, it's very grainy. It's it suffers from this issue of digital images, or ev- or even film images, but digital images you have a fixed resolution, and if you zoom in, you can do AI stuff to try and gain resolution, um, but it's not information that was actually there.
0: You can actually enhance as much as you want, and then even turn the image around. And enhance it some more.
3: Sure, CSI. Um, so <laughs> they they're they're trying to extrapolate a lot from not much actual information. Um, I agree with them that it's a bird. Yep, I think I think they took a picture of a bird. Um, I'll give them that. Whether or not it's this woodpecker, uh, they might be overreaching a little bit. Um, but again, it's not peer-reviewed, right? So, yes, I think one of the... I'm
0: not even sure why it was covered, quite honestly. It's it's just a bunch of cryptid nonsense. Like, I, I'm, I'm not being very charitable to it, but I, I listened to his whole long lecture about the thing. And, like, most of the time, he just talks about how he can prove the length of the trees in the shots. But he only does that so he can argue about the height of the bird that you can barely see and barely make out and has digital artifacting all around it and has right. none of the provable telltale signs of Ivory Bill, and, like, it's just terrible evidence.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know why this got so much attention as it did, because it, it just doesn't warrant it, you know?
3: I think one of the, the big challenges we have coming up in the way science reporting is going is <laughs> reporters don't know the difference between a peer-reviewed article and a preprint, uh, or they they might, but they don't really understand it. So I, I saw something about this this article, which is not peer reviewed. Then it goes on to just report what the article claims, and yeah. uh, we that that sort of gives people with spurious claims a real short path to the media if they want to bypass the normal peer review system. I think you know if this is ends up submitted to a journal. Uh, depending on the quality of the journal, it probably won't make it very far.
0: Mm. <laughs> it made it in
3: Science once.
2: <laughs>
3: oh, sure. Well, uh, yeah. I, I I guess it it <laughs> depends on the editor and the the peer reviewers that day. Uh, having a, a a journal with a, a big name is not a guarantee of a good paper.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. I I think what happened. So my my opinion of this whole story was basically there's this really beautiful bird. That many cultures saw and thought was awesome and apparently this bird like it's it's well adapted to a very specific niche but it's a very narrow niche so it's the kind of creature that does go extinct you know even without human interaction um but human interaction definitely you know we we see it just drastically reduce the lifespan of of all kinds of creatures and we did it to this one and um they're, I don't think they're out there anymore. I, I think what happened with Cornell is that they have a legacy of this bird. They really wanted to find it. And and Fitzpatrick here, because he's an expert, um, motivated himself into believing he had it. And then other people who respect him and respect the institution of these ornithologists I said that word really wrong, but it's funny, so I'm keeping it in, um, respect them, kind of got caught up And in this like like celebration of this discovery and people started seeing it because the thing is, if you're motivated enough, you will always find what you're looking for. And that's exactly what they did. They primed themselves to see this bird and then anything that could maybe be the bird became the bird. And then so much so that they announced it. And then things like science respected their opinion enough because they're supposed to be a respectable institution. But they got they got drunk on their own want for discovery and stopped yeah. to make sure that they actually discovered something. And I think it's kind of sad because people would love this thing to be real. But in my opinion, this bird is extinct. And it's another thing that uh, civilization has killed. And... Mm-hmm. It's it's just like the Tasmanian tiger, right? Um, these these are real animals that existed, and people claim to keep seeing them, but that's that's a collective cultural grief and a cultural paranoia, and it's not it's not anything more natural than that.
3: So yeah, you know, it, yeah, I agree. It it really is a melancholy feeling to think that we're living through one of the biggest extinction events in the history of our planet, and we're the cause and it's happening really fast and if we have children they won't have as much diversity of life around them as we did when we were children and the world in in our future is going to be very different from the one that we have now and it's it's, it's real tempting to grasp for those last little straws of you know well maybe this one made it made it out
0: um there's also a cynical opinion of some of this so because the department of um interior not not department Interior, what is it a fish and wildlife and the department of fish and wildlife um under the bush administration was you know really complicit with all this meanwhile they were trying to like you know drill and take back some environmental protections and the person who kind of okayed all this and let the actual state department like be a patsy to this later went on to work for shell oil And I kind of feel like saying, oh, look, these extinct animals are still out there could be read as a we're not doing as much harm as you think. So I I don't know if that kind of cynical reading is true, but some people had posited that. So I wanted to bring it up. It's a possible reading of the situation. So. Mm. Yeah. But. I I feel it in my heart thinking about extinct animals because you know like just just try to like close your eyes and imagine like the big bang to the cooling down and and making of all these rare elements and then these nebula clouds and they form Earth and all these different like explosions of elements and and energy on Earth you know from the Cambrian explosion like like we had like an oxygen holocaust and meteors hit the Earth and you know, warms and, and cools and, and the continents get pulled apart. And, and in these millions of years, zooming into hundreds of thousands of years, like life can form and change into these individual niches that only happen one time. And then it made us, and somehow we've completely distanced ourselves from this process and kind of arrogantly and foolishly just like thumb around this this place and these years and in, in this small amount of time in like celestial time like like not even seconds on, on the clock we've like vanquished half of this extremely specific natural creativity that that has happened because of nature like all these things have taken billions of processes of physics to come to being have been wiped out because of us, and it, it's it's just a sad reality.
1: Well, and it's a sad reality that it was done for like completely stupid reasons, like short-term profit motives. Like, the one um, guy shot it so he could taxidermy it. Right, 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 right. Just to make a a, a line on a graph go up uh, over a a season. You could also, you could also, very optimistically say,
0: we are the only animal that we know of so concerned with the extinction of other animals that there are people like us and many other people that that care and they feel it in their heart when they think about these things and they want to save them and they devote their life to saving them and they want to discover them and they donate money and time and care for these other creatures you know who don't benefit their daily well-being and and that's a noble and good thing in humanity so that duality is really there so, you know, it's really
3: yeah. it's really sad thinking about all the delicious animals I'll never taste. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: I,
3: you know, I mentioned this comic
0: before, but there's this book called Proof um, about like Bigfoot and stuff. It's a comic book. And one of the bad guys in it is this guy who hunts cryptids so he can sell their meat to rich people. <laughs> so they can taste like you know, Nessie and and Sasquatches and Mothman. Fucking steaks and stuff.
3: Oh, it's interesting. What would that taste like?
2: Mothman
3: steak. I don't know. Chalky. <laughs> I mean, that would be one of the first uses. So people have been talking about trying to resurrect mammoths or whatever. We obviously, I think, one of the first uses would be mammoth steaks.
0: I uh, <laughs> do you support the resurrection of the mammoth, Jonathan? If it is feasible, of course. I
3: I haven't thought enough about it to have a strong. I opinion. need your answer right now, and you're not allowed to change. Yes or no? Yes.
0: Okay. Oh, good. There we go.
1: <laughs> I support it. Uh, I think it's it's a uh, the allocation of resources. I guess is like we're focusing on the wrong thing. I guess I don't know. So
0: zero I, thumb though. I could I could totally get that. It's probably a completely reasonable point. I think kind of like grandiose moments do matter because they bring a lot of energy into things. And I think people saying that science can fix a thing and can do something awesome like that would help people's psychology and would help put more energy into conservation science. So that's I, why i support
1: things like that i don't i don't see it as viable too i don't see a like them like yeah creating a, a surviving healthy population of mammoths so that's just, a yeah. that's a different part of it too yeah. you know it'll kind just of just a novelty you know mm-hmm. like just like one will be created for a couple decades or something like that and then it'll die be, it'll be cool though it could be our friend we could go into pictures right, with a, it i'm a downer i'm a downer <laughs> <laughs> So
0: one last thing about the Lord Godbird uh, before we finish up this part, they are actually peppered around in the show Gravity Falls. Um, they're never like specifically really brought up, but you see them flying in and out of scene sometime. Kind of because you know Gravity Falls is like this weird X Files cryptid kind of cartoon, and the Lord Godbird, the ivory billed woodpecker, is kind of a pseudo cryptid. So I always thought that was a really cute touch in that
1: show. So. That's cool. I never noticed that. I'll have to yeah. have to keep my eye out for it. Yeah, I first saw
0: one. I was like, "Ah, oh, it's that bird. It's that weird woodpecker guy." Uh, but anyways, Trey, it's time
1: yes. for something else now. It's it's the it's the time. It's whatever he comes here for. Now they come for everything else too. It's can we get Monster Quest?
3: <laughs> Monster Quest. Yeah, Monster Quest.
0: Forget about it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I like that, like, tentative monster quest. Okay. Head start.
3: (laughs) Witnesses around the world report seeing monsters. Are they real or imaginary? Science searches for answers.
2: On Monster Quest.
1: Okay, Trey, what is science searching for answers on this time? All right. the The opening of this episode is is very great. They got the writer did an awesome job. He said New York City is teeming with people and something else, dun, something dun, dun. that is taking a bite out of the big <laughs> <Whoa>. writing. We <laughs> were like, "Whoa, that's like it, it's a very distinct. <laughs> it's usually very utilitarian the the writing on Monster Quest, and this is very poetic."
0: It's, yeah, it's a little very, more like in search of. Like they would have a. Uh the guy in my glass I'm drinking out of right now, they'd have him say all kinds of poetic nonsense about monsters. And it's a little more like that. So it might be a callback. It's a Maybe. stealthy
1: callback. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yes, so this episode is talking about rats. Got some, some ratatouille in there. Oh, I, I was thinking like um, uh, uh, Ratigan from The Great
0: Mouse Detective.
2: A, worse than the widows and orphans drowned <laughs> You're or the best of the worst
1: Oh yeah yeah, okay, we could do that. Radigan. Yeah. <laughs> well he's more monsters right too, he's a friend, you know. Yeah, he he's a good guy, yeah. Radigan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking of uh, the the skeevers and uh in, in Skyrim too, those those little guys. Sure, sure. Uh, all kinds of rats. Yeah, rodents of unusual size. Yep, RUSs those. of course.
2: Honestly, what about the RUSs? Rodents of unusual size? I don't think they exist.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. So what well, what what are they really looking for? What's unique about these rats, Miles?
0: Well, first of all, they live in forgotten tundle, in tunnels of a rat-infested rat underworld. And um, <laughs> they're like four and a half to five pounds, maybe? Yes. So we're talking like super rat style, like, like 20, 24 inches
1: long. The size of a cat. We're say. talking... Look at the size of this sucker. <laughs> That's great. Yes. Bigger. And they're getting bigger and bigger over he, the years. Exponentially yeah. Exponentially growing.
0: They they are bigger, smarter, more aggressive. And um, the, the one guy says, the exterminator guy says that these rats will skeeve you up.
1: They skeeved me up. <laughs> that, is, that was Sam Soto. He was. He's got this great New Jersey accent and he's... he's he's an exterminator that was that was awesome
0: yeah he's out there fighting the rats you know the rats fight him he wins some they lose some you know they got a real back and forth going on
1: (laughs) throughout the episode that you meet some real characters of of new york city this and they Mm. treat treat rats like they're like this this demonic force taking over the city gradually and it's like a fight we meet a man who lives in a cave yeah, we literally meet a man who lives with a ca- in a cave and, and has to fight rats in daily life. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what are they thinking about? So these are big rats.
0: Uh, what kind of animal actually is this? What rats live in New York City?
1: All right. So I, I these these are uh brown rats or also called a uh, norwegian uh rats. Okay. Yes. And um they so they it's they're kind of they have an interesting kind of history where um they so despite their name where they're norwegian rats they actually originate in northern China Mon- like in Mongolia in mm. Asia um and they sort of and they spread into Europe and other regions and they uh and into North America during the colonial era and they just exploded and and they just just they lived in cities they're perfect in there for their living environment and they're just like the most prolific rodent species on the planet now damn yeah, yeah, it's crazy. And and there's a lot of debate actually if like um like when rats when the brown rat invaded Europe and, and other regions. Like there is an interesting article I found that talked about like it, did the ancient Romans have a rat problem like New York City? Um and it's kind of debated. The it, the old idea was that there were no Roman rats. Uh it was kind, they kind of like they only migrated into Europe during the Middle Ages. Hmm. Uh, but the truth is probably more complicated. There's some uh, fragmentary like, so evidence. So there's of- some Roman rats. There, there were some Roman rats. There's like very small um, bone evidence, and the problem is that the Romans didn't distinguish between rats and mice. They like just, that, uh, like that rat Brutus can't be trusted. Brutus, <laughs> um, yeah they, they they didn't they didn't have a word that distinguished the two. Like, mm. They thought they were the same. They just used moose or. Um, m-u-s however you pronounce that nobody knows how to pronounce these words <laughs> you did mouse, your best um and they would use weasels and dogs as rodent control in their houses um and then the brown rat the brown rat arrived in europe sometime in the middle ages and, and maybe a little bit later the first sort of, sort of uh scientific recording of it is in like fort in uh, 1553 mm. um and and then we uh, over time you see that their presence increases. Like in the 1700s, they're in Ireland, in England, in France, and Germany. Um, they also are kind of involved in like the spread of the the Black Death uh, in Europe. Um, and then and then they arrived in North America around the 1750 1755. They and they, they took root in those colonial colonies, and and from there they just kind of exploded and uh new york city is a hotbed for him there used to be two different rat species uh dominating new york city there was the brown and the black rats mm-hmm. and um as late as like the 1940s there was probably like equal amounts of these two populations in the city but by like the 2000s the brown rat out competed and then like exterminated the black rat was the, the great city. purge the great purge there's probably a very interesting uh like and scary rat mythology story. yeah rat mythology if they had a religion or well, have I you watched that? *The Secret of Nim*? Is that a, is that a thing that happens in *Secret of Nim*?
0: Well, I'm just Why? saying, have you watched that?
1: Uh, I think as a kid. I think as a kid. Yeah. Well,
0: know, they oh, got no. they got they got their own mythology and shit going on then. You, nice. you should watch *The Secret of Nim* again. It's really good. I
1: should rewatch it. Yeah, that's yeah. a that's a classic era of uh, 2D animation right yep. there. Don Bluth. Don Bluth. My, my oh, man. Don Bluth. <laughs> my man. <laughs> <laughs> Don Bluth is a thief in the cobbler, right?
0: Uh, so Don, Don Bluth worked at Disney in the 70s and helped make like Robin Hood and, and stuff like that. And then he basically got mad at Disney and then left them. And he made Anastasia and Thumbelina and Rockadoodle and um, Secret and M and that kind of stuff.
1: Oh, cool. Dang. Yeah. Yeah. So the, yeah. So anyways. Anyways, rats. rat. Rat. <laughs> the brown rat has just dominated New York City. They're everywhere. And they're like, um, it's just, it's a good environment for them, I guess. It's just, they, they breed really quickly. They, uh, just invest the tunnels and eat okay. trash and stuff. What's the
0: normal size of these, these brown rats, which killed all the other rats and get everywhere.
1: They're usually, um, the largest one is like 12 inches there. Okay. That's a big large. one. So you got
0: a foot long rat. That's a granddaddy rat.
1: That's the biggest that they get. that confirmed right. by, by, size, right. like confirmed by like an actual specimen. Sure. Um, and I have a history with them. I, my aunt used oh. to live in New York City, and and I hated going to New York City because I would see the <laughs> rats all the time. I hated it. It was scary. <laughs> there you was get like, a lot of uh, fights with local rats, Trey? I, I, no, I remember this. is was like one of my earliest memories is we were walking down the street, and there was a, a dead rat in the road that somebody ran over with a car. And I was like, cover my eyes. I don't want to see that rat. <laughs> I like, turned British for a second. <laughs> <laughs> well, you never turn British. Never
0: go full British. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah so yeah I, I've, I've and then also i worked in a genetics lab and i worked specifically with mice but there were rats also in the sure. lab as well and i, oh, I all i had heard horror stories about those rats they were so big um it <laughs> was a freezer there was a freezer so i worked with the mice and you had to you had to kill some of the mice every now and then i hated that job <laughs> but anyways you had to put them in a freezer once you killed them um, cause they needed to use them for testing or something. And in the freezer, you put your little tiny mouse next to these giant ass rats. They're, they're huge. They're like, they're not like cat size, but they're like, they're like pretty big. When you see them in person, it's kind of intimidating when you see them. You it's think like, you oh, could wow. beat one in a fight or. Oh, I don't know. Like if a rat was really angry with me and running at me, I, I don't think I could beat it in a Damn. fight. Damn, sorry. <laughs> you
3: know, given, but- given the choice between working with a lab mouse and a lab rat, you're a lot better off working with the rat because the they're they're kind of domesticated they've been bred for about 170 years and they're like compared to the mice they're puppies uh the mice are mean they'll bite you oh jeez oh, yeah. they'll i've 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 been tasted by mice and <laughs> i have i've have, i have tasted mouse blood um in a separate incident um oh, and you, you can you you'll get into scraps with the mice but the rats are 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 happy to be with you they're 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 friendly mm. the the domesticated lab uh lab rats even <laughs> though they're big
1: and scary i see yeah. okay that's good to know because i i hated working with the mice because they're so tiny and like um you had to always take samples with them and stuff and think like, they would like scream at you and stuff and <laughs> i hated that and i was i'm so like passive and um timid with working with them i couldn't do it i like couldn't Yeah you're you're a big softy dino boy <laughs> I, I couldn't do it i was like i was like build up my entire life and like oh i'm excited to do genetics work with with animals and i was like i can't do this i got to i just want to do the lab stuff you <laughs> running <right> <laughs> pcr or whatever <laughs> um so like they bring up some other large rodents right yes yeah, we talked to Dale Kukainen, which is a he – ra- he's a rat ecologist. And yeah, he brings up capybaras and, um, and also these giant prehistoric rodents um, in South America. Yes. <laughs> which are not alive anymore. <laughs> yeah, these are extinct. They talk yeah. about like these very large, like almost car-sized um, capybara relatives – and yeah, they're gone. They've been gone for at least two million years. Well, it's a
0: different family too, right? They're not related yeah. to yeah.
1: They're a different branch of, yeah. of rodents. Like beavers are, are rodents, and you know, like it's very broad when you say rodents. Which
3: is is odd because beavers are actually closer to rats phylogenetically mm. than than capybaras. And there were giant beavers in North America yep. and, during the last Ice Age. Mm so that would that would be a closer comparison yeah, probably that's, yeah that's
1: north america it's not like all the way down to i guess i'm assuming it was like a recent discovery and they were just kind of jumping on the bandwagon i don't know
0: <laughs> they basically asked him name the scariest rat you know and he did <laughs> yeah. is probably what yeah, he that's did true. so yeah Monsters. um and, and rats can survive a uh, nuclear holocaust i heard
1: yeah. He, uh, Dale, I, I liked, I liked Dale. Dale was an interesting person to interview for this as he was like talking about how he was in the Marshall islands and they talked about like rats were one of the few animals that survived the nuclear blast. Oh, my, sorry. My voice, <laughs> nuclear blast <Yeah. laughs> happens every time. I'm like still growing, I guess. It's okay, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they're, they're hardy little things and they can tread water allegedly for, for three days straight and- Now
0: it's it, it's it's worth pointing out on the nuclear blast thing is they survived a nuclear blast because they lived in the nuclear bunker, right? It's not like the blast came and they just stood there like Goku and they're and they're like <laughs> your weapons mean nothing to me. It wasn't like that. So
1: yeah, it's a misleading way to say yeah 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 they're not. Like, they're not I could like- kill
0: a rat by kicking it. I could do it. I promise you. Like a nuclear nuclear blast is much more powerful than my kick. It's like three times more powerful. So. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's what we're looking for right we're looking for these kind of these norwegian rats which are actually chinese rats um yeah. <laughs> which are basically double their normal size so they're dire rats uh, it's a real animal but a giant size sometimes in monster Quest, we're not looking for a cryptid we're just looking for like a crazy ass version of a real thing and that's what we're doing this time so um who are some of our characters who are gui- gonna guide us on this quest trey
1: well, we have some – it was kind of interesting seeing who they selected because they got, like, uh, a couple experts, maybe, like, a handful of experts, and then just, like, it's seemingly, like, random people. Like, uh, like They got the Charlie sheet. Kelly. He's an expert in rats. <laughs> got that rat nest. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, they like, for example, there's a guy named Alberto Saldana. I love that dude. Maintenance man. Uh, He lives in a basement. That's his qualifications, I guess. (laughs) Well, (laughs) First of all, man in New York lives in a basement. I'm like, get him on the show. He knows about rats. (laughs) That guy, everything going for him, we need. His story is that he saw rats in his basement and he yeah. killed them with a hockey stick. He did. And they had the hockey stick in the episode, too. Like, and he, said, and he, he says this great quote. He goes, the only way to survive in New York. It's the only way. You got to hit things with sticks. There's no
0: other way. That's how, that's how we got out of Africa. That's how we live in New York. You know,
1: It's stick versus the natural world. There's another guy. His name is Gino uh, Rodriguez. He's an apartment manager, and he got a call from a tenant about a rat in the toilet. And mm-hmm. like, it's funny. He like was like, "Oh, I'm not and, like it, like." He talks about the story where he's like, "Oh, I didn't actually really want to go and help out the lady." And it's like, "Isn't that your job as the manager to kill the rat?" <laughs> and he's like, he was like, re- like kind of like hesitant to do it. And uh, yeah, he talks. He says he got a baseball bat, whacked him in the in the t- toilet. Um. <laughs> and it was a, and then th-
0: I I really like the Samuel Soto guy.
1: Oh, he's awesome. I I love that guy.
0: Yeah, he's the guy. He he's an exterminator and he found a mutant hybrid rat. Yes. It was a half domesticated, half wild rat like a cow, a speckled <laughs> looking rat.
1: Yes. Yes, yeah. he believes they're getting bigger and bigger and uh it's this elusive white rat that he's trying to find. He's like it's like Moby Dick. He's yep. trying to find this this rat and yeah yeah and i i so i checked back on him and he's still in uh, he, in 2014 he appeared on a pest control podcast and he's well, still doing the business so good for him yeah
0: he's he's a dedicated rat murderer and he has a thick accent and uh <laughs> he's the guy who said they'll skeeve me up they skeeve me up and so i like him
1: because he talks from like hoboken. that he's from hoboken he's got that Yay. Cake boss accent yeah <laughs> Yes, yes. And then so another guy we talked to is uh, – so there, we have a whole suite of exterminators here. We got – jack so there was Jack Weiler, um, and he's like the skeptical exterminator. He was very <laughs> – He's our boy. <laughs> he was our boy. He, he was pretty smart. He said some pretty smart things. He says yeah. New Yorkers like to exaggerate. Um, he thinks that – he confirms that nobody hold, has caught a rat larger than 12 inches. Um, and one of the people we interview on the, on the episode, Dale, is the one that holds that record. Um uh, Jack guy he's a poet. He was a poet. He uh he died unfortunately uh like a year after the Monster Quest episode. The rats got him. The rat oh I'm sorry, I got I'll him. cut that. <laughs> <laughs> he 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 he's uh, rest in peace, uh Jack. You're good. Give us some good uh, good uh information here.
0: Yeah, he was good. He's basically like all these New Yorkers are full of shit. I talk a bunch of shit, rats only get so big, look it up on Wikipedia. <laughs> Learn something. I'm out. <laughs>
1: He was like he was like a very very good voice like it was great it was he was very skeptical of the whole thing and he, he gave some good reasons for his skepticism. Rest yeah. in peace, Jack, the skeptic yeah. exterminator. Yeah, skeptic poet exterminator. That's a great. Yes, that, that's our boy. Of right there. Yes, yeah. So that's a couple things, and then um, Miles, you want to talk about Steve? Steve Duncan.
0: Okay, so yeah, Steve Duncan. He is an expert of the underworld, right? He's an urban <laughs> explorer. He's part dwarf. Um, he explores like Erebor, um, you know, tunnels under New York, all that kind of stuff. He actually even had a TV show. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he might've been on this show to kind of get him ready to do his TV show, which came out after this. So that might be a possible connection there, but, uh, he, he's actually going to help us go and look for these giant rats that might live in the underworld of New York. Um, yes yeah because he he does like explore sewers and stuff all over the world because you know there's a lot of underground there's an underground in seattle there's one in france you know like these catacomb places are real yeah
1: Um, i I saw a a vice interview with him after the episode and he's really passionate about sewer systems he he loves them so yeah just just like (laughs) charlie
0: this is a charlie kelly episode
4: hey buddy yeah what's going on there pal oh my god i just
0: found a rat's nest slaughtered about 200 of them <laughs> mm,
4: 200 could be that's
0: christ oh it's like it's like whole generations of those things have died at my hands and mothers fathers grandfathers little baby rats
4: mm, yeah wow. well you know keep up the good work
2: yeah Sometimes a wonder though if
0: our lives are really more valuable than theirs, you know what I mean? Yeah.
4: Mm-hmm. They are. Yeah. Our, our lives are definitely yeah. yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. Without a doubt.
1: He is like he is like Charlie Kelly. He like um in the thing that I saw, he like loves to um hook uh, video cameras up to rubber duckies <laughs> and send them down the sewer just to see the video of <laughs> what's down there. It's great. Yeah. Uh, Steve, Steve, Weirdo. Uh,
0: like him. <laughs> a
1: weirdo, but a good one.
0: Um Yeah. We also um meet two dudes who are um
1: down on their luck, I suppose. Uh, yeah. They live down there? They live in the dark tunnels underneath the uh, 10th Avenue.
0: Yeah, so they meet this man who's been living for 6 years. in a tunnel under new york city in the dark Mm -hmm. um and they ask him if he's seen
1: any large rats this was jose yeah. yeah
0: yeah and jose uh he says yeah in the great darkness of the catacombs of new york city i saw the mother of all rats (laughs) <laughs> and it had big red focused eyes and it was very aggressive and it growled at him and it stood across the train tracks and dared him to follow.
2: <laughs>
0: and I was like,
1: "Fuck?" <laughs> like I, and, I, and it's it's scary trying to ma- imagine it cuz I'm assuming the tunnel's like almost completely dark if not completely dark. Oh god.
0: And look, I don't I don't mean to be insensitive to this man, but I mean, I think it's very likely that a person in this situation is dealing with substance abuse issues. Mm. So, I, I don't know. I feel like interviewing about him about this might be iffy. Yeah. Um, you know, I, of course, don't know. He may not be, but it, it's you know, the man's living in a tunnel. So,
1: yeah. you know. He, it's, he also I, he also heard a bear-like growl down a yeah, tunnel. Yeah. I don't
0: know. I hope they which, paid him for this.
3: Which, uh, by the way, he, the the vocalizations rats make are not – don't tend to be growls. They tend to be <laughs> higher pitched. Yeah. So whatever animal was growling at him uh, it probably wasn't a rat. It might have been a, a, a dog. Could have been a person. Yeah. A person? Yeah, I mean
1: <laughs> – Rawr. Well, hold on. We don't know what it was yet. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: It could, could have been a giant rat.
1: Yes. They could be real, right? There we we used some there was some photographic evidence of a dead rat in San Francisco. Oh yes. Ford Smith. Um yeah, he took he he saw it in the middle of the road and took a picture of it. So there you go. Yeah, so we got we got that. We got some
0: photos. Um we have the rat that we killed with a baseball bat in the toilet. Yes. <laughs> like the story's like what's the end of the story there's a there's a rat in the toilet someone called to get it and i was like leave me alone and they're like no motherfucker get up here and i got up there and he killed the rat with a baseball bat i'm like this is new york this is this is new york this is new jersey this is this is what it is
1: the, okay so the most i think one of the most interesting stories on here is the rats attacking on mass oh in, yes uh, 1979 a, a local man Claims to have witnessed a woman get attacked by a pack of rats working together. And, uh, and then he goes on to say that he saw, a bu- like, in response to this, he saw a whole bunch of guys hit the rats off of her with newspapers. Yeah. And uh, and the police were called, and they they did a retaliatory sort of extermination hmm. of the rats. They were tossing bags of them hmm. afterwards. <laughs> so it's uh, quite the story. You have woken right a sleeping giant in this war, rats.
0: <laughs> this is your Pearl Harbor
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah um yeah that's uh, interesting it, uh yeah did that happen I, we don't enter like i feel like we if we get an interview we should interview the woman that was attacked but i guess we never saw her and she just moved on with her life
0: yeah she's like ah fuck next day <laughs> you think that's the weirdest thing going on in my life <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah and they also read a world war one uh diary oh when- that was rough that was really rough. He was talking about how like rats in World War One would be in the trenches and eat human bodies and and eat wounded men and stuff. Uh, he said has like one story where a rat crawls out of a skull and stuff. It's pretty pretty scary stuff. It's it's yeah, that's pretty dark. Yeah, I, uh,
0: pretty much all stories from World War One are pretty dark. It was just a mm-hmm. uh, terrible all around event in human history and. Yeah, I don't imagine. People did have hard times with rats then, of course, you know, and we have this like long memory of being scared of rats because of the Black Plague, of course, and you know,
1: yeah. We also have fun memories of rats. Remember Pizza Rat? Yes, I do. Now,
0: as you say <laughs> that, Pizza Rat is great. That's the Pizza real I dif- <laughs> right,
1: After I watched this episode, I watched a whole bunch of YouTube videos of just rats in New mm-hmm. York. And it's, like, the, the craziest thing. Like, there's, like, one where this guy's sleeping on the subway and a rat jumps on him, or rats inside the subway running around, freaking people out. It's uh, it's interesting stuff there, right? You know? so <laughs> It's New York City. <laughs> we talked to all these
0: people, and yes. we find some rats, and we kill some rats, and we find some guys who said they saw rats, and we found a story of a person attacked by rats. Did we find any of these dire rats, these twice the size of known rats?
1: Sized rats? Uh, yeah, not really. No. <laughs> we so the the search they, they they did a little bit of a search. They got they, primarily they got <laughs> Dale like Dale Kukinen and uh, Dr. Bruce Colvin, mm-hmm. who are sort of rat experts. They're they're pretty good. Um, they know their rats. They 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 they're very knowledgeable. And um, one of their main methods is to have RatCam, a world first. Oh yeah. Well, I forgot about Rat Cam. Rat Cam. They were going to use a Trojan rat into a Burrow.
0: <laughs> oh, dude, I forgot about that. Heck, yeah. They were trying uh, to
1: replicate what they did with the giant squid, I think. Yeah,
0: which worked.
1: <laughs> which um, worked, and maybe it worked on rats. So, yeah, they,
0: they make a little, like, setup for him, like a little, like a vest with the camera on the back. But the first one was, like, too loose and heavy. Mm-hmm. So th- so they, they get a little tighter. They tailor it. It gets a tailored little vest and they put a camera on his back with a smaller battery and they send him down into the underworld.
1: Yes. Yeah, they get they use a uh, professor uh, John Chapman um for that. He he actually has a history. I I looked him up. He worked previously on a robot arm that could be controlled by a rat back in 1999. This guy so he, is an evil scientist. He's like trying to get cameras on rats and then robot arms for rats. It's like rat cyborg is in the near Robot region. rats
0: that can see everywhere in New York City.
1: <laughs> yeah, so so that's part of that crack team that gets the rat cam and, and they release, they capture a rat uh, using chocolate and a piece of carrot as a bait.
0: Yeah, and they put down these like blue strips that like get rat footprints mm-hmm. and, um, and they find a rat. Right?
1: They find an average size size rat. Yeah. That's nothing unique about him. But here. I'm
0: sure our our little backpack rat, who's a real trooper and a great guy and beloved by all, I'm sure he found a big rat for us, though,
1: right, Trey? Uh, well, the, uh, the don't rat speak cam bad about him. <laughs> rat cam was a bit of a failure. Oh, That's, it, was, oh. it repeatedly fell off. It was too built bulky. Yeah, and the rat. The one time that they got the rat to actually go down to the hole, it went directly back up, and like <laughs> a, a rat was chasing it or something. It was like there was it was very territorial. Mm. Um, well, yeah, you know,
3: rats only like like their litter mates. Like they have rat if they recognize the scent of a family member they'll be okay but you throw a rat in a hole with the smell of stranger rats mm-hmm. it's going to be like nope not 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 doing this
0: <laughs> wait so so if camera rat found a monster rat would monster rat eat our little dude maybe maybe oh, i don't it's like this I don't do not like this
1: experiment i think they talked about how rats are cannibals right like they, yeah. they eat each other they're not brutal. above eating each other.
0: Oh. <laughs> they're not they're <right> above it. <laughs> you know what's one thing I thought it's weird they didn't mention was the rat king idea. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it, a rat king is this um, phenomenon where a group of rats get their tails, like, bound together, right? Their big, ugly-looking tails get all stuck up in a knot. And they basically can't untangle them because the little dudes don't have thumbs, right? Or language. So they don't really have a way to be like, hey man, calm down, you pull this, you pull that. They're just stuck. That's just how they are now. And I mean, it, this is probably a real thing because like, there's illustrations dating back to the 16th century showing it. And um, we have them, like examples of them in Agar in museums in like Germany and Estonia and New Zealand. And you can see some videos of this on YouTube. Um, wow. Some people have proposed that, people prank dead rats and put them in this scenario or some of the videos on youtube people have tied those rats tails together which would be very cruel um but i don't know i think it's probably a real phenomenon it Mm -hmm. it allegedly happens because they get close to each other in the winter they like bundle up and they get like sticky substances on their tails pretty easily and they just kind of start like you know sticking and together just like cables do like if you put a bunch of cables in a drawer right like entropy just makes them all twist up and then they can't get the part and they have to work together as a team or die basically
1: wow uh, funny enough there apparently is uh, a thing called squirrel kings as well yes similar phenomena yeah i know that i thought
0: they would talk about it because rat kings are like monstrous and scary looking almost yeah in,
1: in the name of like rat king that's a really like very cool name to to name this phenomena after
0: and they're probably real so it would have been a cool thing to talk about but no but it's fine though because we found a giant rat right trey
1: uh no no we no. didn't we didn't they, we we after numerous tests uh we didn't find any giant rat steve duncan doesn't find jose's giant rat he says there's no trace of the giant mm. thing how um, about the the white rat the white rat of myth Oh, okay, so that that at least gets some closure. That w- that was kind of good. Um, our buddy Sam actually captures the mysterious mutant. Uh, they say uh, he he says it looks like a cow, and he, he holds it. It's a uh, rat that has like white fur, but also sort of brownish fur as well. Um, they believe it's like probably a crossbreed with um like uh, street rats with like uh, lab or pet. I don't rats buy that. You don't, You don't buy that. No, it was a joke, Trey. <laughs> you think it was planted?
0: Well, no, I was making an Aladdin joke, Trey. What? I mean, Aladdin? Yeah, I'll just play the clip. Move on. Next thing.
1: Keep going. <laughs> I, I don't know what you're
4: referencing. It's fine. Riff-raff, street rat, I don't buy that. <laughs> the view. Okay. the
1: listeners will know. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, and so our buddies Dale and Bruce uh, get that specimen, this domesticated rat, and they think it's, um, think it's a very recent uh, runaway rat. Because um, it's it's very tame. It, it seems pretty okay with humans. And uh, our buddy Dale actually takes it home as a pet. So there's that's a happy ending. Some,
0: they're like, we're searching for this monster, white hybrid rat of legend. And they catch it. They're like, actually, he's chill. He's fun. I like him. We watch shows together.
1: <laughs> so, so that was good. Uh, yeah. Th- Steve believes that the rat that the Jose saw in the cave is probably like a possum or raccoon. Maybe yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: I'm kind of torn between being like, you guys are talking to a guy living in a tunnel and then not wanting to be like inconsiderate or rude of that guy. But yeah. like, yeah, I don't, I, that guy doesn't know what he saw, man. He's, he's literally in the dark in the tunnel. Like, yeah.
3: I was just, just thinking like, it's, it's kind of a little exploitative of this guy. Um, they, you know, they probably offered him like 50 bucks to be on TV and you know, he's going to say, yeah, I saw a giant rat. It growled at me. Of course he did. Right. Yeah. <laughs> because that's what that's what they're paying him to do yeah um (laughs) you get you get
1: that kind of thing with um later episodes when they go into like um yeah yeah Where like there's a there's a clear um ulterior motive or or sort of uh that they're giving the people money and stuff that like they're they're going to tell them what they want to hear kind of yeah there's Mm -hmm. a power imbalance there it makes kind of like can they be relied upon yeah yeah i saw a dinosaur how much? Yeah. <laughs> How much is it
3: worth if I saw a dinosaur? Because I saw one. Probably, I saw it about sixty-five dollars worth. I mean, I don't think you can. It's completely fair to discount his testimony just because he's unhoused. Mm-hmm. Um On the other hand, you know, there's there's incentives and and power struck, power imbalances, like you said, make it kind of like, okay, maybe we need to. Maybe this is not the most reliable testimony to go off of. Right. Um. So how would you guys rate the likelihood of giant rats? I think, like, I think rats being twice the
0: size, um, or even like, let's say like 70% of their known size is pretty low. I think that, I mean, so like, let's to put this in reference to animals that I know about, like I know their size. Well, like, like like fish i know more i know it's not the same but like there are outliers that reach like that high degree that if you looked up like how large your bass you would get like 3 or 4 pounds right there are 20 pound specimens but fish live a long time i, I don't think rats can really just double their size um i don't know i, I got to say like 2% chance just off the top of my head of like the fact that a rat's going to be double the size of what we've ever seen before so
1: I okay with that. so i should
3: i should break that into two questions one is individual big rat versus a population of rats evolving to become a, a larger mean size overall
1: That's I think, an interesting um, so, idea. okay um, yeah no i i think like given like um, a, a very long amount, maybe like a couple cent- centuries or, or thousands of years. You, rats could evolve to be better suited for cities and take on different ecological niches and stuff. But it would take a very long time, I think, for them to, to they, get. I guess double.
0: They are accelerated because it's artificial selection, right? Because like we're putting crazy pressures on them. Um, but yeah, it'd still take quite a while to like just double your freaking size, you know. Like what? What's, what selects for those big rats passing down genes? They'd have to have something in their culture too, which let the larger rats breed much more than the smaller ones,
3: right? So, um, and there are there are problems with just making things bigger, right? Yeah. yeah so, yeah. bigger animals you need a lot of time to get big. Uh, bigger animals need more calories. Um, they uh, they their cells divide more, so they develop a greater mutation load, and develop more cancers. So you need time to develop um, genetic strategies to develop less cancers um, if you're getting bigger. Um, and then there's, there's there's issues with allometric scaling. So things like body temperature and metabolic rate don't scale linearly. They they have a, a, a nonlinear scaling. So if you look at something like a capybara or a beaver, they could. They have sweat glands to deal with with excess body heat, and if you just made a really big rat, um, you know, overnight, it's, you can't get rid of its body heat, right? Mm. Um, it's the same issue when you have a, you know the occasional human with gigantism. You know they have a, a, a pituitary tumor that produces growth hormone prior to the 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 fusion of the epiphyseal plates, and they they grow really big, but then their heart can't support their size um, mm. because of the scaling problems. Um, so you know, I could imagine that there would be individual cases of a rat with a similar tumor and, and people have made rats like that in the lab as models for acromegaly or gigantism. So you could imagine a, a rat with that kind of tumor getting really big, um, but that's one individual, right? It's not yeah. a population. Mm. Um so I think you could do a version of this. Um, I I found a paper from I think it was 1907 where they did a population level survey. They caught like a thousand rats, and and plotted a histogram of their sizes and found a mean length and and all that. And you could go and go to New York and, and capture a thousand rats and and measure their mean length and say, look, this population is likely getting bigger over time. Why is that? They're not really doing that. They captured, like, two rats, and they're like, yeah. oh, yeah, you know, they threw their hands up in the air. That's kind of how the show is. <laughs> <laughs> Look, they want a big rat. Yeah. They, they want they, it they, now. Yeah. Like,
0: I think they'd prefer one single big rat than even the population is getting bigger, because they want to catch a monster, not track evolution happening.
2: So,
3: yeah. Okay, so
0: the,
3: so a monster has to be exceptional,
0: I guess. Yeah, because cause in my opinion, they use scientific things like rats are getting larger because it helps couch it. But what they really want is to find one rat who like they can give a name. You know, yeah, it's, the rat, yeah, Scar. the monster rat, yeah. <laughs>
3: so. yeah. I thought it was interesting. They used the term super rat. Hell yeah. Um, but they were they were referring to something that that is happening in rat evolution, yeah. which is kind of interesting. Yeah, they use the same um, thing talking about
0: weeds that can get resistances to different pesticides, right? Like,
3: uh, right. So you know, the main pesticide you would use is warfarin, which is a, a blood thinner. It makes the rats not be able to clot, so they bleed to death. Um, Because it's it inhibits an enzyme that converts vitamin K epoxide to vitamin K, which you need for all these um, these proteases involved in the clotting cascade. Uh so, so there have been spontaneous mutations in humans to be resistant to warfarin but also in rats so this is selected for by humans using pesticides on rats so the guys talking about those being super rats and then they cut it to make it sound like super rats are just big big ass rats
1: right yeah a little misleading
0: That's monster <laughs> quest baby that's just
1: that's, just <laughs> that's how just their is. that's their go it's a go to you know uh <laughs> So, um, looking at looking at the
0: YouTube comments on this, the 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 most popular one at the top here it says, "A uh, New York City is scary. I saw a rat the size of a house cat. I must have weighed twelve to thirteen pounds. Oh my god! <laughs> they even buried parts of old Seattle in cement because of the rat problem underground. I like that last part because it makes it seems like they buried it. You know, like like mm-hmm. in some like evil city that like it could never be defeated in wars. So it was buried away in time." Also, 12 to 13 pounds, it's like freaking crazy.
1: <laughs> yeah, that—that that is a crazy. The cat-sized rats, yeah. Someone yeah. else brought up
0: Secret and M, so they're cool. Oh, there you go, there you go. They should listen to our podcast. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, there's just not much to talk about, I guess, because, you know, they, they didn't find any giant rats. It was kind of an urban myth.
0: Yeah, Yeah. I think I think that we can say the conclusion of the episode is basically people exaggerate animals that they see. They're startled when they see them. So their senses are kind of up and they just think they're bigger than they are. And, you know, there are some rats that are slightly larger. And maybe there's a few rats out there who are like on the one percent of outliers that are quite large. They can be up to a foot large it's possible. You know, it's a big rat, but no one's seeing like mega dire rats. So.
1: (laughs) unfortunately yeah. there, there was a story uh, i think last year two years ago um there was a giant rat in uh, mexico city or, or in oh. mexico somewhere and it turned out to be uh and it was huge it was like literally the size of a person uh but it turned out to be a, a halloween prop that somebody flushed down the <laughs> toilet or whatever <laughs> it, it's, there's a funny little picture of it mm. Mexico. so giant um,
0: rat. what would you write this episode trey
1: I uh, so you know what I would actually rate this higher than uh, some of the other ones we saw. I would give it maybe a seven out of ten. I'm actually oh, putting that's it pretty high.
0: That's pretty good.
1: <laughs> I don't know. It was kind of endearing in some parts. The fact that they're talking about rats and they get they get these decent experts. Like they get really funny people to interview. The hockey um, stick
0: guy, baseball guy, and I right. live in a cave guy. <laughs>
1: You just get these weird, bizarre stories and, and, and great accents and, and, uh, rats are just kind of like, kind of spooky creatures, I guess. I don't know. in some honest science. Like the ca- rat cam was a cool idea. Rat um, cam. And I feel like rat, like as I was watching this, I feel like, oh, they should reattempt rat cam as an idea. Cause like the technology just back then, I guess, wasn't as good. So <laughs> with newer, technology, <laughs> smaller cameras, you know, it could work. I'll,
0: I'll tell Doug that I'll send him a message.
1: Smaller. Ca- yeah, yeah, yeah. Smaller cameras and the little rats. It would be cool to see like what's inside a rat burrow. I know we know largely what's in there, but it'd be cool to see like a, a rat's eye view of it.
0: They, all, they also had a slightly different Monster Quest logo in this episode. The, the camera looked a little different to me. They had oh, like really? the red eye and stuff. So
1: Yeah, they redesigned it, right? They they had like the sort of Bigfoot eye and then they yeah. changed it to a green lizard eye. And I yeah. guess they changed it again to another eye.
0: Yeah. Um, I'm going to give this one a six six okay you know it's fine you're looking for a damn rat at the end of the day (laughs) and they also didn't mention rat kings which i think is lame and they should have done it Mm -hmm. so giving them a six um on imdb it has a 6.6 okay
2: it is the average
0: yep kind of it's the 16th highest rated monster quest episode out of 68
1: that's pretty high
0: yeah, with vampires in America being the lowest and giant squid being oh. the top.
1: So <laughs> oh, vampires in America is the lowest. Oh gosh, yeah. that's coming up. That's coming up. <laughs> so yeah, that that was this episode of Monster Quest. Um, let's. Uh, what is next, Trey? Ne- okay, I'm looking at the next one. It's the Black Beast of Exmoor. Um, oh. I'm familiar with this one. I don't know. I, I was wondering if you wanted to skip it or not because it's it's similar to one that we did in the in uh, last year, I guess. Uh, lions in the backyard it's just in england instead
0: Mm. we'll ask people
1: we'll ask we'll ask the people if they want us to skip because if not we could skip to chupacabra which is the one after that chupacabra is a cool so cool one i like chupacabra because it's like
0: has a very clear known origin you know yes Yes. um but we can talk about that yeah we'll, we'll ask we'll put up a twitter poll or something if people want us to skip the black cat one we can or you know we'll cover it if people want. So okay,
1: um, yeah. I feel I just feel like we we would we, uh, might retread on some of the sure of stuff. It's like sure. it's just a big cat. We and... we also
0: have prehistoric planet coming up. So oh yeah, baby. And um, we're excited to announce. Last time we set a goal on Patreon of eighty dollars a month, and if we got that, then we would start working on our Prince of Egypt video. Mm-hmm. And um we got that thanks to a couple of people who back new, a couple of people up their pledge, and one particular person. I don't know if they want me to say their name, but it's big thanks to you. You know who you are. You um gave us a very large pledge that uh helped us get to our goal. And so we're gonna be start working on that Prince of Egypt video. Awesome. Yeah. I'm excited
1: for that, Trey. I'm excited too. I've been doing a lot of research for it, so it it'll be cool.
0: Yeah, I've uh, I'm trying to contact some of the people that worked on it to see if we can get some extra insight on it. Um, oh shoot! From an animation perspective, I thought they might talk to me on that, mm. you know. So maybe we'll see.
1: Um, James Baxter, we get him in there. The yeah, well, I'll do my best. <laughs> but uh, yeah,
0: we're, we'll be working on that, and we have prehistoric planet coming up in two weeks, so
1: it's exciting, right there. Yeah,
3: awesome. yeah. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, Jonathan. It was really nice to have you. Yeah, it was great talking to you. Thank you for having me. Uh, have a good, uh, have a good monstrous rest of your week. Hopefully, you don't have any giant rats in your walls. Dude, I would love some giant rats, man.
0: Like, <laughs> um, now I'm I'm gonna go watch a Better Call Saul and have some tacos. So,
1: oh, sweet, there you go. I'll let you know,
0: know, know it. what I think of it, Trey, after I finish it. So.
1: Nice, nice. I watched yeah. it earlier today. So.
0: Oh, oh, oh no! You see it before I, I, me. I,
1: if my parents are listening to this. Oh, wait, no, no, no I'm not listening to that. Come okay, right. no spoilers. No
2: spoilers, straight! <laughs> Jack
1: okay,
0: Jack I'm going to be in St. Louis yeah. I'm coming up the next few days for Comic Con, so if anybody's yeah. down there, you're welcome yeah. to come see me. I'll try to get this out as soon as I can, the but I'm hopping out of plane soon. Uh, thank you all for supporting science yeah. and monsters and, and rats and vikings and do birds do and whatever else comes next. Enjoy your life.
2: Kim does. He thought an Albert's stir-fried deer would make his apartment a home Bottoms up in this time, won't you let me be Bottled up in this time, won't you rescue me Should've been the last night and heard what the Big Dipper said to me.
4: I bored me, but I learned to think like you.
2: Now, nothing bores me, that's that. Nothing is thought through. You let me be bottled up at this time Won't you rescue me? Got it up at this time It is all I can see Should have been here last night Heard what the big dipper said